driver present pursuit of entertainment, education, and some adjectives to be named later. The Home Star Army proudly presents Trek West 5, a conglomerate podcast of science fiction, politics, humor, and pretty much whatever else we want to talk about. Trek West 5 is brought to you in part by RocketWebDesign.com, custom web design at template website prices. Designs by Dee.blogspot.com, your online home for all your digital scrapbooking needs. Need a home along the Wasatch Front? Contact Lisa DeBagere with Kirkham and Friends Real Estate. No one will work harder for your home. And thehomestarmy.com, blogging to the world since 2004. Your hosts for Trek West 5 are Joey and Peter. Good evening and welcome to Podcast 109. I am Peter. And I am Joey. And uh, what a crappy, horrible week this has been. <laughs> I hear you. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, Joey, but uh, I didn't actually send out the weekly email. Until Friday morning? <laughs> until this morning. <laughs> I just totally blanked on it. Just forgot. Uh, it uh, Yeah, it was an unpleasant week for me. And ended uh, none too pleasant. Uh, anyway, your week, uh, much better? No, not significantly better. <laughs> good, good. That seems appropriate. Uh, any announcements uh, we need to make? I don't think so. We finally got the award sent off to, uh, listener, uh, man. <laughs> we, it's, do we try it out? Can we just go with Carbonite? Do we have to have the man in there? Oh, that's true. We don't know if he is a man. The name is Chris. I think it's Christopher, but oh. that could still be a female, I suppose. <laughs> Can it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's the kink all over again. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, we'll we'll try out Carbonite. You know, I, I I wanted to say I have been playing Words with Friends with the Gink. Oh, really? Um, and I gave him a little grief about not writing in lately. You know, I told him I said I haven't heard from you in a while, and he said, "Well, he's got one coming." So. Oh, okay. He's. Uh... Yeah, maybe he'll finally comment on season one. <laughs> uh, I got a couple of things that I, I'm really not sure where to put these at. Um, Here fits as well as anywhere? Yeah, I guess. Um, listener BS. He uh, he wrote up a couple of things. Okay. Uh, the first one is a possible intro for season three. Okay. In the style of the Babylon 5. Okay. So... I'm going to try it out here. You can tell me whether or not uh, we uh, we like this offering. Uh, so just imagine, you know, the Dramatic Babylon music. 5, yeah. you know, music. Uh, yeah, all of the, the sound and, and whatnot. The task of writing episodes for the Babylon 5 was arduously looming throughout seasons 1 and 2. JMS's last chance for a day off was to rely on other writers, such as Lawrence Dottilio. He failed. <laughs> But in the third season, Babylon 5, JMS, became something greater. Became the first showrunner ever to write an entire 22-episode season amidst a five-year arc. And our last, last best hope for victory. <laughs> the year is 2011. The place is TrekQuest 5. So we're going to use that as our intro? Well, I don't know. I, I think he just kind of threw that together. <laughs> uh, I, uh, we probably really should record a new intro that thing's been up there a long time um yeah anyway so that's uh first little thing 
Second thing is, uh, um, listener Brainy Smurf sent in is an email he entitled "Earth Angels." Oh no! <laughs> and he says, "In case you Kosh bashing, in case no, it's not." Okay. It, he says, "In case you dudes are, find this interesting, I thought it was also relevant toward uh, possible Kosh intervention instances." Here is a fairly reliable short list of some of Earth's angels throughout recorded history. Okay. So, uh, messengers. First one is Michael. He was the dragon slayer from the book of Revelation. Yep. Um, Raphael, book of Tobit and Paradise Lost, a loner, kind of like Han Solo, but he smuggled healing and science. <laughs> I'm not familiar with him, but okay. You're not familiar with the Archangel Raphael? Right? Uh-uh. Clearly you haven't read your Apocrypha. Yeah. Uh, Gabriel, he is just a... He defines him as a messenger extraordinaire, because Gabriel's all over the place. Yep. Uh, Jibril is the uh, revelation of Quran to Muhammad. Okay. Again, I really don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, because he's spelling yeah, it D-J-I-B-R-I-L. So I don't know, is the J silent? Is the D silent? Neither is silent. (laughs) (laughs) Jibril. That's more offensive if we screw it up that way. Um, And then Moroni, 5th century son of Mormon, as an angel, later revealed golden plates to Joseph Smith. So that that musical's really paying off well. (laughs) Um, Okay, now here's the category of fallen angels. Lucifer... Uh, definitely, well, he references somebody from the Babylon 5 thing, but I'm not going to mention him. Okay. Um, barely mentioned in the Bible, mostly from Paradise Lost. Um, Harut and Marut, Islam, uh, they visit Earth and apparently sin it up. I'm not familiar with them. Uh, Lilith is the original Eve. And she got booted for sexual position preferences. Um, sort of a Jewish demoness now. Probably a Vorlon. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Simyaza, a watcher from the apocryphal book of Enoch, sexed up earth girls. I don't remember that one. Okay. Oh, clearly Joey doesn't know his apocrypha. <laughs> And then uh, Nicolas Cage in that stupid movie. <laughs> I think it was Michael. I think that was the name of it. I don't remember that one. Ah, it's alright. It's, it's Nicolas Cage, so who cares? Maybe he's talking about Drive Angry. Huh? Wasn't it Drive Angry? The one with Nicolas Cage where he's a, a, he was a demon that came out of hell and was sending other demons back or something like that? It's a recent Nicolas Cage movie. No idea. It's Nicolas Cage, so we can just move on. Oh. We've given him far too much in this uh, <laughs> podcast already. And then a miscellaneous list of angels. Uh, Raziel is a Jewish Kabbalah secret keeper dude. Uh, Abraxas, also Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, gave us the word abracadabra. Mm-hmm. Uh, Metatron, yep. he is all over the place. Uh, also transfigured Enoch. And the official angel of the USA. I didn't know that one. New to me, yeah. Uh, Sandalphone uh, once was Elijah. Okay. Sophia, aeon of Gnosticism, chick of wisdom. Vohu Mana, 
Good Mind Zoroastrian. Okay. And then uh, the next one is Clarence <laughs> from It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> and, nice. uh, yeah. He's... And then, of course, uh, Michael Landon um, from... Uh... Well, what about, what's her name? Touched by an Angel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they did kind of leave, uh, what's her name from Touched by an Angel off. <laughs> Clearly affected the both of us very deeply. <laughs> Hey, she was good looking. I don't need to know what her name was. Della Reese? No. Well, you have no, it's not Della Reese, Della huh? Reese. Well, I suppose so. I, I, I don't know what she looked like in her younger years, but uh, I suppose there was a beauty to her. She had a great voice. She was a strong woman. <laughs> no, no mention of Uriel in there, huh? Uh, no, uh, okay. I, I've read all of the angels. Um, he says, practically every religion has angels. It is a way we can all find common ground. Um, rock on. All right, so that uh, that covers okay. my intro stuff. Shall we move to Facebook Find of the Week? Yeah. And uh, who is going to receive our illustrious award for Facebook Find of the Week? Listener SpongeBob for oh. counteracting Brady Smurf's email by giving us The Devil Went Down to Georgia <laughs> by the Charlie Daniels Band. <laughs> yeah, The Devil Went Down to Georgia is just good stuff, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really enjoy that. And uh, I didn't actually watch it. You just played it to, um, on your computer here before we started. Um, apparently, they're like they have cut pieces cut out as it's singing the song that is apparently well, no, going along with it. The, it's a YouTube video, and the whole video clip is just random photos gathered from what looks like all over the internet that have the word, current word he's singing in them somewhere. So. Huh, I wonder how they referenced the word the. <laughs> it wasn't for every word. Oh, oh, okay. My misunderstanding, my mistake. All right, well, congratulations, SpongeBob. Uh, we'll be, sh you know, sure to, to send out her award. Uh, I'm not sure what we're going to do because Bob and SpongeBob live in the same house. They're separate people, though, Pete. Okay, all right. Separate people. All right, fair enough. I understand. Uh, all right, so uh, expect the award. Uh, sometime. <laughs> We're not that great at sending it out. Because uh, apparently Pete is incapable somehow of sending them I out. don't have the thing. It's in the sent email. <laughs> That's I, where I get it from. <laughs> you never expressly sent it to me. All right. Jo Joey's Culture Corner. What do we got for this week? Uh, it's a book by a guy named S.M. Sterling. It's called Dies the Fire. Um... It's pretty good. It's a science fiction-ish story. It appears to be... Uh, the, it's the first book in a pretty lengthy series. Um, I think it's supposed to be a retelling of the Arthurian legend. The The base concept is that... humanity. It's 1998. And something happens to the entire world that destroys all electronics, any kind of computers, anything that requires high technology... As well as making things like gunpowder and rocket fuel stop working. Is it an electromagnetic pulse? It's not an electromagnetic pulse uh, because an EMP wouldn't affect gunpowder. Not that we know of. <laughs> Maybe all these years it's been slowly eroding the chemical makeup of gunpowder. It's an unknown event that happens all the world over at basically at the same instant. And so, wow, that really sucks. Yeah, there are planes up in the air with people in them that come crashing down and... Thousands and thousands of people die. Uh, the 
every global economy falls apart almost instantly. Wait, phones stop working. Phones then. stop working. Oh crap! I need to. I'm really behind in getting my compound ready. <laughs> I uh, I need to get a compound going. So the the story is about two different groups. Uh, one of them is uh, it was a guy who was uh, air taxi service, and he had a family with him that he was flying them up to their ranch up in Oregon, and they were in a small plane. The plane crashed, but he managed to land it in a bunch of water and saved everybody. And they're making their way towards the this family ranch up in Oregon. And the other group is a Wiccan coven. <laughs> also based out of Oregon. <laughs> so the the main events appear like it seems like they're gonna take place in the Willamette Valley region of Oregon. Um, but the 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 group that was in the plane, they spent pretty much the whole first book getting to Oregon. Um, in the process they, you know, crossed the paths with people who were, you know, trying to kill them for the stuff that they had. Um, the the Wiccan coven had a, well, one of the places where they practiced was a ranch or kind of a farm up in the middle of nowhere. And so they all head there. And the, the, the next farm over was run by a pair of Mormons, <laughs> a guy and his wife, who, who were diabetic and needed insulin to live. And when the power went out, their insulin spoiled, and so they died. And they left a note on the door saying, anyone who finds the ranch is free to take whatever they can make use of. And they find the Mormons two years food storage. (laughs) (laughs) What an odd bit of Mormon culture to put in a science fiction novel, right? Oh my gosh, that's crazy. (laughs) And so they they take the two year food storage and it helps them survive. Uh, and And basically they're trying to Rebuild up to some level of technology. In some, it has some parallels to 1632, which I reviewed before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it was it was really interesting. I'd say the the overall premise or the big idea is what would happen to human society today if all the technology just stopped working. I, I've got a question. Does do does the internal combustion engine stop? Yes, the internal combustion engine stops. Even though that has nothing to do with electricity. It has to do with fuel, though. Any hot-burning fuels like that... Okay, you didn't mention working. that. I, you, I apologize. You, you just said the, the gunpowder. Although most most engines today do have quite a bit to do with electricity. Th- they Spark do. Spark plug. Yeah, yes, of course. Of course. I'm not suggesting they don't. I'm just saying... Well, that seems odd that not even static electricity... Uh, he just never mentioned static electricity. Maybe static electricity still works. Yeah. Hmm. He certainly didn't talk about a character, you know, dragging their feet across the tar- carpet and touching a doorknob or anything <laughs> like that. Because <laughs> I was thinking, if static electricity could work, I don't see why a spark plug still couldn't work. There's no there's no yeah. technology. And it, it, it appears as though he's trying to say that some outside force is doing this to humanity. Hmm. So this is not an accident. This is something that's being done to us. So the Vorlon. That's <laughs> uh, a good crossover, Joey. Good choice. All right, so uh, you would give the book... Thumb? I'd give it a thumb up. Uh, I mentioned D- Despite to... the fact that they don't explain all the electricity. Well, again, stuff. I only read one book of a... I think it's like a 10 or 12 book series. Oh, I've only geez. read one book. Like um, a Wheel of Time thing, kind of? It's... 
Yeah, I, I, there, there's much shorter books actually than the Wheel of Time books, but okay, uh, I enjoyed it, and and so I mentioned to our friend Jared, who's been on the podcast before for the Stump Jared yeah. fame. Um, I mentioned it to him and said, "Hey, I thought you know I read this. I thought you might enjoy it." And the next morning, I got an item from him. Here, he said, "You're right. I did enjoy that." Good heavens! <laughs> so he enjoyed it enough that he went home and read the whole thing. <laughs> that boy needs to watch more TV. <laughs> he is wasting his time reading all this, all these books. Wow, that's uh, now that doesn't surprise me. That's what Jared does. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that was a good share. Uh, I think so. Uh, people can go down to the local libraries or uh, bookstores and uh, purchase said book. Dies the Fire by S.M. Sterling. Okay, uh, we will move into episodes then. Uh, and we will... Uh, I think we're going to cover episodes 1 through 4 of Babylon 5, Season 3. You think? <laughs> well, I didn't watch them all. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding, I did So, Joey, do you have the, the uh, summary for episode 1, Matters of Honor? Londo attempts to sever his ties to the shadow while Earth and Lord Rifa build their own ties. The White Star is introduced. Yes. Uh, I really like this episode. This mm, this is... I really enjoy okay. this. This is good stuff. Yeah. I, I think that they did a good job. This is a good opener for this. Can I, can I start with the script book intro here? Okay. I think I may need to write all the episodes this season on my own. If I'd known when I uttered those words what that one little sentence would require, I would have kept my big trap shut. <laughs> what I didn't know at the time was that no American television writer had single-handedly written every episode of two or more seasons of a dramatic series. And there's a damn good reason for that. It's freaking impossible. Although I think Aaron Sorkin proved that, you know, if you're on coke, it's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> at the same time, it seemed a sensible solution to a straightforward problem. By our third season, the arcs and story threads had grown massively intricate and convoluted. Previously, I'd been able to parcel out individual stories ahead of time to freelancers and to Larry Dottilio. <laughs> <laughs> but I could no longer see far enough ahead structurally to know for sure where episode 4 would end and episode 5 would begin. Further, more and more foreshadowing was required. More foreshadowing? <laughs> Good heavens! Little clues that needed to be planted all over the place, and nobody but me would really knew, know that future history well enough to know what was coming. It seemed massively unfair to put a freelancer in the position of writing a script, only to have it rewritten stem to stern through no fault of their own. In all honest, honesty, I was hoping someone else would come up with an alternative solution that would allow me to be talked out of it. But when I called Warner Brothers to tell them what I was contemplating, this, they said, actually... We were going to ask you if you could do that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had enough to tell you. Yeah, I think they did. So, I was screwed. I girded up my loins and started writing, after one little interruption. So, it turns out that right as they were starting to shoot this season, the crew of Babylon 5, which to this point had been non-union, um, or had turned in their union cards in order to come work on Babylon 5, finally were forced to unionize. They were forced to strongly unionize? Strongly encouraged to unionize. <laughs> <laughs> there was like the mob out in the parking lot just cracking their knuckles like, wow, what are you doing here? He, he talks about how, you know, that there were, he said that our crew were standing out in front and they were saying, 
hey, we want to go to work, but the union is here. They're telling us that we will be blacklisted. We'll never be allowed to work again in Hollywood if we don't unionize this show. Wow. The unions took a, a weird turn somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he talks about how they... Part of the problem was that there was no union contract in Hollywood at the time for less than a million dollars per episode for television. And they were shooting Babylon 5 on about $800,000 per episode. Mm -hmm. And so they had to come up with an entirely new uh, contract structure that allowed them to stay under a million dollars. And they, to this day, he says they use this contract on other shows that are low budget, and they refer to it as the Babylon contract, because it was created specifically for Babylon 5, and now has been used a lot in Hollywood. It seems weird that no one had ever had that issue come up before. Apparently they were all so, so expensive, or they were so small. They were either so expensive that they were unionized anyway, or they were so small that it wasn't worth the union's attention to go out and, and threaten blacklisting the crew. Huh. So they, they get all this negotiation done, and at the end, they're $80,000 apart. The, the, the union says, you have to bring it up this amount, and the, the production, or the... The producers and the you know the the Warner Brothers are saying no, it has to come down this much. And so, J. Michael Straczynski met with the director of photography and said, I'll "Tell you what, you put up your wage for one show, and I'll put up one, my salary for one script, and that will be the eighty thousand dollars that's missing. We'll throw them in the pot and we'll make this deal." Good lord! <laughs> he was making forty thousand a script. Well, somebody was making. Half of 80, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It may have been that he was making $20,000 a script and the director of photography was making $60,000 an episode. I don't know how the split worked out, but it's clear that there was... Okay, $20,000 no, a script? right? <laughs> what the hell? We are in the wrong business. We are we stupid, for stupid, stupid, stupid. <laughs> well, I don't even know what I was doing in, in college anymore. Yeah. So there you go. I just thought that was an interesting little... Aside. Well, I'm depressed. I don't want to do anything anymore. <laughs> I'm actually concerned that the union's going to be outside when we leave, and they're going to say, hey, it's time you unionize. You're not using union microphone operators. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, maybe we'd finally get some good sound quality. What do you think about unions? Um, I think we've talked about them before, okay. but I'm just going to say this. They definitely have their use. I usually don't side with unions <laughs> because for the majority of my life both of my parents were on management side gotcha. whether it be because my dad was you know he was a manager out at uh, the, the place where he worked and my mom was on the school board so I mean she was you know diametrically opposed with the teachers unions sure. <laughs> um, so I usually got a pro management stint <laughs> Now, I, I really think that unions help to protect the American worker. And uh, in the end, you know, workers throughout the world uh, eventually, because they help to bring about and say, look, change needs to happen. We need to protect our workers. The problem I have with unions now is a lot of them seem to have lost sight of the the goal, their purpose? Yeah, or the, the higher motive that they should be going for, which is you know protecting the worker, not just, hey, let's just try and get as big of a cut as we can and screw the rest of the people. 
Okay. And so that type of mentality I have a problem with. So if I were to come in contact with a union that was like that, I would be very, very unlikely to um, understand their point of view. Gotcha. It, it's been really interesting in the past few months there's been a lot of discussion about the video game programming industry and how when they give these dates, like they say, okay, it's going to be out Christmas 2012, a lot of times that's a very aggressive release date, to put it nicely. And these programming teams have to put in like 120-hour weeks to get these projects in on time. And so the programmers, well, it started a few years ago with the wife of a video game programmer writing a blog about how her husband was just so put upon and abused by the video game company. They were making him work, you know, Saturdays and, and 20-hour days and stuff like this. A couple of weeks ago, there was a, an investigation into, I want to say it was EA, but that might, be, that might not be the right company. One of the big software firms, video game firms, um, because of, I don't remember what the video game was now. Anyway, big, big kerfuffle in the news. And I read a very interesting article where, well, they've been talking about unionizing video game programmers. And I read a really interesting article by one guy who said, you know, I understand that you guys, you know, you, you feel like you're, you know, this crunch time thing is a mistake. And if, if it's happening all the time and it's affecting your health, yes, it probably is something that needs to be looked into. But the thing you have to remember is that video game programmers are paid ridiculous amounts of money. And the bonuses they get for bringing these projects in on time are just out of sight. And if you guys unionize, you're going to be screwing yourselves because that's going to stop. And you will become paid as though you were a union. And, you know, the people in the Steelworkers Union aren't making six-figure bonuses mm -hmm. every year. So it was, really, it was just really interesting because, I, I mean, it's been something I've worried about for years. If they start to try to make programmers go into a union, I won't do it. I, I won't join a union. Because I work the schedule I work because I like it, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna slow down just because the union told me to. Because I'm making the rest of my union brothers look bad, <laughs> which is a perception that I, clearly I have about what un, one of the things unions do. Um, I yeah, have been union in, workers are just shoddy people. They don't care about their work. I was in a union at one point when I was trying to get into technical theater and. You know, I did have that interaction with somebody who said, "Hey, look, you know, you need to realize you're making the rest of us look bad." And I understand so, that that's what? not all of the unions, but there are people who are drawn to the unions because of that. Yes, the lazy, the slipshod, the uh, <laughs> ignorant. <laughs> anyway, it was it was something that because it was in the news and and it coincided with the events in the script book, I just thought we could briefly discuss it. Yeah. Um, I don't want to see unions go away, but I would definitely love to see them. I would love to see everyone, union and management, get off of this idea that, you know, they're either either side is is evil. And uh, <laughs> did I send you that quote from Robert Kraft, um, owner of the Patriots? Yeah, uh, something about uh, the the budget yeah. thing. Well, yeah, the, I, the NFL and the owners, the NFL players union, and the owners signed their new collective bargaining agreement. And he made a comment to the press that, well, Washington should get off their butts because 
there's no way that the American economy issue is as difficult to work out as the NFL <laughs> budget. <laughs> and we got this worked out, so what's Washington's hold up? <laughs> I really hope he was joking about that. It is not reported anywhere as though he were joking. <laughs> Jeez. Okay, um... Well, uh, can we get into the actual episode yeah, now? Absolutely. Let, uh, let's do that. Uh, Londo wants to back out of his deal with the Shadows. And Mr. Morden uh, basically says, Really? <laughs> well, uh, you understand, if you do this, here's what we want. And uh, this part of space is yours, this part of space <laughs> is ours. <laughs> Seems interesting that they would divvy it up like that. But well, did you look? Did you look real close at how they divvied it up? It's like eighty percent of the galaxy is ours, and you guys get this one corner over. Here. <laughs> it is not a fifty-fifty split by any means. What I enjoyed was Londo's question at the end, which was, "So, what guarantees do we have that you're going to stay on your side of the line? You don't." Yeah. And I thought, boy, Londo, you are such an idiot, <laughs> such an idiot. Um, okay. Uh, Earth apparently knows about the shadow ship. Yeah. And, uh, they send that guy. Yowie? Yes. Okay, I didn't write down his name. I like the actor. He's not been in anything fantastic, but I just, every time I've always seen him, I thought, oh, he's a nice guy. <laughs> I like him. I think he does a reasonable job as an actor. You have a little man crush on him, do you, Pete? No, I don't have a man <laughs> crush on him. Uh, but uh, I appreciate what he does as an actor. Uh, anyway, he um, is basically going around and interviewing everyone to say, okay, what do you know about this ship? And the only thing he's really able to get is that Londo has seen it in dreams or nightmares. Yeah. and It's, it's in his prophetic dreams. It's his dream of his death that he's seen it in. And then uh, Jakar, he finally, you know, he decides to talk to Jakar. Unofficially. Unofficially. And Jakar basically says, look, this is, you know, this is in, you know, a thousand years ago. These ships were out there. And uh, he just kind of writes it off. Like, yeah, it's nothing but hearsay and, uh, you know, just stories (laughs) about stuff. This, you know, it's nothing. You know, it's nothing. And so that's his report back to uh, Earth. Yeah. And uh, we cut away to Earth, and you know, jumping to the end here, and uh, we have some senator on Earth who's meeting with Mr. Morden and a psychop. Yep. And uh, wow, if that is not just like the worst group of people to ever get together in a room. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know. I don't. I can't, I can't think of another group that that would be worse. Uh, but uh, that's definitely, definitely going to be bad. So Mr. Morton clearly has he's developed some sort of relationship. Yes, with Earth. Even though Kosh said, "You leave them alone. They're not for They're you." Not for you. Yeah. Um, so it'll re- remain to be seen what happens now with the shadow. Maybe the shadow or going to be coming to visit Earth. You know, you skipped right over the introduction of Marcus. I know, I was just covering that oh, particular portion of it. The Marcus storyline really has nothing to do with this. <laughs> okay. I mean, it it okay. doesn't, for the most part. 
Uh, well, aside from the fact that Marcus is a ranger and he's going to be helping to fight the Shadow. Um, he it came to Babylon 5 to get the help of Sheridan because yeah. there's some base that uh, is under Centauri control and they think that the Shadow know about them being there. It's his training ground for the rangers. And so he goes to Sheridan and says, Hey, look, I have the means, if you have the will, to be able to get these people out of here. And so Sheridan says, Well, all right, let's go. <laughs> and come to find out that there is a new ship that has been built. Yes. It is a Vorlon Minbari hybrid. Who built that ship? The Minbari. The Minbari religious, religious cast. So the religious cast built that ship. Yes. Okay. And how did they get that built without anybody else knowing about it? Seems like union workers would have been involved at some point. <laughs> no, they use religious cast. They use monks. <laughs> anyway, I, I did find that interesting that uh, the ship is run by the religious cast mm -hmm. who don't really have any, you know... Uh, history or expertise in running a ship like that. And then, uh, I thought it was interesting that uh, Lanier then says, you know, I think it's time we start cross-training a bit here <laughs> <laughs> so that we don't have to depend on just the warrior class yeah, absolutely. Uh, on these things. Uh, anyway, the ship is called the White Star. And did they name that... Uh, didn't he? Didn't Sheridan destroy the Black Star? The Black Star. Star. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of an interesting naming convention there. Yeah, I, I thought that that was interesting. Uh, I want to read here about the design of the White Star. Rolling out the White Star fleet was essential to the progress of the season, but I must confess I've never been really happy with the design of that particular ship. I wanted something sleek and fast and deadly with a separate section that could peel away as a kind of scout ship. But when the first drawings came in, my reaction was that it looked like a plucked chicken. <laughs> I didn't think about it like that, but now when he says it... Now you can't see it any other way. Yeah. Just, still feel that way, in fact. Everyone around me loved it. And I mean, loved it. Now, I may be a bit bullheaded, but despite how that tends to be perceived, the truth is, I work hard to stay open to the possibility that I may actually be wrong from time to time. <laughs> By the way, I read these to my wife before we watch each episode, and she laughed out loud at that part and said... Boy, you two would get along. <laughs> <laughs> Normally, whenever I've gone against what my instincts are saying, I've ended up regretting it. But the reaction of everyone else was so strong and so compelling that I thought, okay, well, maybe they're right. Let it go. I have regretted it ever since. A plucked chicken. I swear, just look <laughs> at the thing. <laughs> the interior design of the ship was not much better than its outside appearance. The layout of a ship is mandated by its shape and size on the outside. And since the outside was problematic, what we ended up building inside turned into a nightmare for directors. Some of our directors made it clear they would sooner give up their firstborn than to have to shoot inside the White Star. <laughs> <laughs> Let me hasten to add that this was not the fault of our esteemed and wonderful art director and production designer, John Iacovelli. He was stuck with the body design he inherited from CGI. He did absolutely the best anyone could ask for, on that goddamn heap of junk. <laughs> With one exception. The script specifies that the White Star Fleet uses organic technology. Since we don't have organic tech with us today, the question became, how does one visualize that? 
How do you build it into the scent so it can be recognized instantly as organic? That question was answered for the ages, well, for one episode anyway, when I walked onto the set midway through our first day of filming and saw these gray-blue things tacked onto the front of the Minbari consoles. They were hard and ropey, began nowhere and ended nowhere, and they had just, screwed a, just been screwed into the consoles without any real sense of functionality. Worst of all, guess what they looked like? Plastic chicken entrails. Oh. Bad enough to have it look like a chicken on the outside, now he had the guts on the inside <laughs> to go with it. <laughs> the minute we finished shooting that episode, the entrails were yanked off the consoles, taken out back, and burned on the off chance that they might regenerate. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. Uh, I like that. But uh, I like the White Star. I think it looks cool. It, it, now, I, now I see the plucked chicken, but for years I thought it looked cool. Yeah, I thought it, I think it looks cool as well. It's another one of those things where I'm uncomfortable with the ship design. I, I just I I think that people when they go to design ships for these sci fi shows, they go with, Oh, let's let's do something cool instead of Let's, let's make it functional. Let's design something that we think would actually be an appropriate type of vessel. Um, I was uh, it was fascinating. I watched a, a Nova uh, program, and I know it's old because it was talking about the uh, um, the ISS Discovery. Oh, okay. The one that broke up over Texas. Challenger. Challenger was it? Okay. Wait, which is the one that blew up in '84? Uh, oh, that's Challenger. You were talking. Oh, you're talking about the one where the pieces fell off. Yeah, and it literally broke up yeah, okay. in entry. Yeah, I think that was Discover. Discovery. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, they were talking about how, like, the whole, like, the system was doomed the second that they came up with that concept. <laughs> because they, those things weren't really to be used in an appropriate way. Like, the best method to get things up there is, you know, oh, we should have been doing it like we were doing with the Apollo thing where, you know, we kept the, the module essentially away from all of these other parts that, you know, could come down and crash into it. And we had we never built in these contingencies. And uh, I was just thinking, why don't sci-fi people start planning out what these ships would look like in, in a much, much better way? Gotcha. Realistically. Because... Uh, again, I go back to the Borg ship. Yeah. In my mind, that seems like the best design ever. Absolutely. Or some sort of sphere or something. The the Romulan ships, the Klingon ships that have, you know, all of these pieces that come off in these weird places. Like, how are you going to get somebody over there to repair that? <laughs> Please explain to me how that's going to happen. You know? Uh, and so, anyway, I, th the ship is... Once again, designed with the, oh, that looks cool, but that doesn't look functional at all. Yeah. I'm and uh, that, that was disappointing. But I was okay with the ship in general. Okay. Um, all right. So Sheridan appears to actually be a good tactician. Yeah. This guy, I mean, they talk about him in the previous episodes. This episode, they prove it with the, with the things that he does. Um. They find out that a shadow ship is actually following them. And the shadow ship doesn't know what it is because it's never seen a design like this. Yep. And has no idea what its capabilities are. So it's just following them, trying to watch where they go. Or at least so they deduce. Yep. They, they guess at that. So Sheridan says, you know what? 
let's head for this jump gate here. And, and I want to say, I said that the Marcab storyline would pay off. <clears throat> that they foreshadowed that. That there was foreshadowing there, and it was for a reason. Or they just used it conveniently. Because <laughs> they could have used any old jump gate in any area that was unused. I think it was by design. Prove I'm wrong. <laughs> I don't need to. You need to prove <laughs> that you're right. Uh, anyway, so they come out of this jump gate. And in the midst of doing that, they open up another jump gate. Another jump gate, which apparently they've, you know, it causes these huge problems and they just, it's just not done. It's the second time we've seen a jump gate be used as a weapon. Is it the second time? When the shadow it? closed closed the jump gates earlier on these other, on the Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, when they opened up a portal into yep. it. Uh, this time it was actually through a proper jump gate itself. Yes. Um, and so from what we can tell, the I'm assuming the shadow ship was destroyed because there was a massive explosion, but we don't ever actually see the shadow ship destroyed. We're just left with, okay, probably it was blown up. It was destroyed. Okay. Um, it seems odd that they've... What? Here's my question. What were to happen if somebody was coming out of a jump gate at the same time, somebody was trying to open one up and go in. It can only open in one direction at a time. So whoever broadcasts to the jump gate first. So somebody gets there first. Right. What happens if it, if it happens at the same time? Who wins? It can't. It's electronic circuitry. It's a computer. It can only do one thing at a time. And it can't possibly... Like strike at the same time no. and cause some sort of like fatal can error. Only do one thing at a time. I know it can only do one thing at a time, <laughs> but this is like this ancient technology. You know, maybe it's a little beyond your Matt Classic Two you, you got sitting over here. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, I don't know. I was just thinking, what happens if you know somebody's trying to open it up? Is like, can you enter into the uh, that space from an exit? You know, like getting onto the freeway by going up the uh, <laughs> the, the off ramp. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I guess we'll never know. Anyway, they uh, they're able to get away, and then Sheridan leaves. I don't know where they're keeping this White Star ship. They must. They Sector eighty nine. They have to keep it in some place that's out of the way so that no one yeah. knows about it. And uh, I think it's out where uh, Jakar is doing his weapon transfers. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that's uh, that's basically the episode. Yeah, I really think they did a good job. I enjoyed this episode a lot. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything else? No. Nope. Okay. We will go into comments then. Listener money bags. He says, um, "Hey guys, well, season three is um, underwhelming so far. <laughs> In four episodes, about twenty percent of the season, we have a couple of big reveals and developments, but a surprising amount of plot." not related to the main arc at all. I watched In the Shadow of Zaha Doom this week, a good episode, and it makes some of Sheridan's actions more believable. He has a strong motivation. The shadows killed his wife. I do have two observations. One, is it really that eyebrow-raising that Morden is still alive? People survive disasters all the time. Sheridan doesn't even know about Morden's shady dealings, but he immediately has Morden arrested. He doesn't even just talk to him. 
Care to respond to that? Well, I think the I think Sheridan explained his reaction in, in the in the episode where he says, you know, it's been so long and you haven't done anything to tell anybody you're alive. You know, it just it just looks hinky on the okay. surface of things. All right, number two. Let's heap some more abuse on Comes the Inquisitor. Oh, man. <laughs> Sebastian determines that Sheridan is the right person for the job. And his primary motivation for doing this job is... Revenge for the death of his wife? <laughs> this doesn't seem like a good fit to me. No, that's not his primary motivation. Go on. Also, I have a review on this episode from Mrs. Moneybags. Quote, It was pretty good. I'd watch another one. Wow. Yeah. So, hey, there you go. I guess that's as high of a uh, you know offering as we're going to get from Mrs. Moneybags. <laughs> Maybe she'll start writing her in her own emails. <laughs> <laughs> oh, why am I trying to break up another marriage? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Let's see here. On to the episodes. Um, I love the new intro, and not just because Ivanova does it. Uh, though the cheesy 90s style headshots of the actors look very dated now. This episode gives us Marcus, who I really enjoyed on the first time through the series. Though I also really enjoyed Garibaldi. So we'll see what happens with Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> this feels oh. like a bridge episode. Not very much really happens. The Earth Force guy visits some people and we learn nothing we didn't already know. Though the reveal with Morden in Earth Dome at the end is good. Morden meets with Londo and breaks up with him. Does he really think Morden is just going to roll over? And why is he surprised when Morden allies with Rifa? This seems like a dumb move on his part. Sheridan come, uh, goes off to rescue a ranger training colony. Now he's commanding alien ships? Certain accusations leveled against him by certain other parties later in the series seem almost justified. <laughs> I like that he's censoring himself here. I can't decide if this is believable or not. We've established that Sheridan is loyal to individuals, not organizations. And he definitely does not trust his own government at this point. And he wants to avenge the death of his wife. But he seems to be going along with everything Delenn says and does. And hasn't the... Earth Mimbari War not been over for all that long? I don't know. I would love to get the opinion of someone who has been in the military. TV5, Sci-Fi 5. Yeah, that's a good question. Twelve years after a war, how much has really healed? Don't know. Yeah. I would say that what Sebastian saw that he sees as Sheridan's motivation that makes him the right person in the right place at the right time is his willingness to sacrifice himself for Delenn. When he told Delenn, get out of here, go away, I will I will let this guy kill me, basically. I mean, he didn't use those words, but that was the essence of the scene. He was willing to sacrifice himself for Delenn, just as Delenn was willing to sacrifice herself for him. It was that willingness to die for one person without the army of accolades that, you know, we all believe that we're deserving of in Sebastian's eyes. That you know that was what made them the right people. Hmm. All right, uh, listener Brainy Smurf. He says, "Hey dudes, what's up? Uh, I offer a very relevant to Babby Five book for Joey's Culture Corner. 
How the Irish Saved Civilization. (laughs) (laughs) Was it by inventing whiskey? (laughs) Why are you laughing? Potatoes. Potatoes. I I think he's serious about (laughs) this. Uh, it's a great history book from uh, by Thomas Cahill, elaborating on how monks preserved a great deal of Greek and Roman wisdom. Western civilization has monks to thank for acting as raft in tumultuous waters during dark times. Irish monks saved and preserved an immense volume of manuscripts and other timeless works through the ages. St. Patrick is discussed, as is his guardian angel, uh, Victoricus, um, A.K.A. Kosh. <laughs> also discussed is Augustine of Hippo's massive influence over Western thinking is also discussed. Um, I humbly think that a uh, that oh Augustine of Hippo was a big d bag. Wow, <laughs> his doctrine of original sin is well, yeah. depressing and very uh, dualistic. And that is just the kind of thinking that the box must jump out of. By the way, uh, I think that the Church of LDS position does not support original sin. I might be wrong. Uh, No, we do not support original sin. Uh, We believe that man is punished for his own transgressions. uh, For his own sins. And not for Adam's transgressions. Very good. Um, Western thinking is strongly hinged on the concept that the soul is localized. Individuality is very important to us. Eastern philosophies such as Buddhism and Hindu contends an overarching um, unifying oneness to describe the soul, much in the way that Delenn and Lanier express Mimbari beliefs to the serial killer monk. My favorite question of Babi 5 is that of Technomages. Where are you going? <laughs> Alright, uh, matters of honor. The box is learning. Babby 5 is taking action. And the box learning not to rely on the Vorlons for answers. Kosh is trying to help in his own way. I believe that Kosh is not acting as the teacher. He is instead taking the initiative to prepare the box to meet his real teacher. Mm, someone else. <laughs> Who? Mr. TikTok? Oh, you can say that. Okay. Well, I can say Mr. TikTok. You can say Mr. TikTok. Okay. David Andui was a great character and well acted too. Uh, it appears as though Andui is merely a proxy sent by Earth as Morden's, uh, at Morden's request to investigate the shadow vessel. I think that he actually never saw a spooky spider craft before. His genuine ignorance would be ideal for the super stealthy shadows. What do you dudes think? Uh, was he aware that Earth is in cahoots with the shadows? I think it's clear he wasn't because they wait until he leaves the room yeah. to bring Morgan and the psychop in. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think he knows either. I also thought that Garibaldi was great at stalling and Dewey. <laughs> that was funny. Oh, those smug boneheads. The Mimbari lie when they say that they never lie. On another note, in Londo's quarters, Londo's portrait of himself is awesome. Where can I get one? This is great sci-fi with planetary blockades and jump gate jumping. I also like how the White Star is operated by a crew of monks. <laughs> sci-fi 8, TV 8. Okay. And listener SpongeBob. She says, Hello, Joey and Peter. 
Bob deserves to be my leader, not only because he sports a lovely beard, but for no higher reason than the fact that he is my husband. Mormons taught me that. <laughs> he gives his apologies for not sending an email. We are obedient minions, but need an order to send in an email before we actually will. And since the reminder was late today, <laughs> and the days of joint email writing is over, thanks to you, Joey, <laughs> he does not have time to send his in. <laughs> I really am sorry about that. I just... I just Totally forgot to send it Look out. Look at the chaos you created, Pete. Yeah. We're bra you and I are both breaking up this household. Uh, anyway, episode one. Uh, yay, we have a contender for hot guy of the season who isn't over 50. You know, I always thought that was unfair that we always did hot chick, but we never opened the floor up to hot guy. Well, she mentioned one in her email. Oh, did she? Yeah. Oh, I must have blocked I I, that out. I can't remember who she said it was, but she said hot actor or something like that instead of saying hot chick. I, well, I remember noting it at the time. Any ladies, you're more than welcome to submit your own hot <laughs> person of, of your choosing. We'll do the hot chicks. <laughs> I didn't mean that the way that you're laughing about it. Stop it. That is not what I meant. Right. You filthy, filthy pervert. See, this is what I have to deal with. All right. You just go clean yourself up over there. Um, dreamy Marcus with his beard, Mimbari-esque clothing, piercing blue eyes, and English accent. <sighs> that's I just imagine that, you know, she said sigh, but I assume that that's what she meant. I think you probably nailed it. <laughs> we could do a whole episode on his good looks and boyish charm, couldn't we? <laughs> oh. <laughs> what else happened in this episode? Hmm. Marcus almost dies. Marcus shows manly valor and warrior skills protecting Delenn. Delenn somehow resists Marcus and is still googly eyed for that clean shaven brute. Marcus, Marcus, Marcus. <laughs> I think we know what she considered the highlight of the episode. <laughs> Clearly, it was the White Star ship. <laughs> I know lots happened in this episode. Oh yeah, the devils uh, go looking for more souls down on Earth. Earth does some digging. Londa wants to quit the devil. Don't worry, Marcus is here. Everything will be alright. <laughs> <laughs> if it didn't have Marcus in it, I would give it a 9. But a beard on a younger man with an English accent and a hardened outlook on life that just screams for the loving company of a good woman... <laughs> This episode gets a 10. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, man. Pete, you ready to give your rating? Yes, I am. I really enjoy this. I think that there is a lot of science fiction that goes into this episode, and I think it was fun. Uh, I think it had a good blend of action sci-fi and other sci-fi. Okay. Uh, introduction of Marcus, yeah, is kind of cool. Um, and we have the whole Morden thing. The way it ends is just creepy. Nice and you, ominous. You should definitely walk away from that saying, oh my gosh, nothing good can come of this. <laughs> um, so I'm going to give this a 9. Wow. Okay, I give it an 8. I, I think you hit a lot of the points. I, I just, I really do love the introduction of the White Star as well. Okay, uh, for television, I think that uh, this wasn't bad. Uh, I had some action stuff, so I'm going to give it a 6. 
I give it a six too. You got the I know the the ladies love the Marcus storyline, although my wife just says, Man, that guy needs a haircut and a shave. <laughs> I'm gonna give it a six. The uh the P five rating for this episode is eight point six zero. Moving on to our next episode, Convictions. The Mad Bomber strikes Babylon five. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't love this episode. <laughs> it wasn't one of the better ones. Uh, it had some promise, I think. But the guy that they get to play the bomber, and the way that they make the bomber go, yeah. turns into this farce. Like, it just seems like a caricature of a bomber. Yes. The mad bomber, if you will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, as, you know, when I saw him, I automatically thought, you know, when he's holding that uh, uh, the bomb thing, I thought... Wow, did they totally just rip that off from Speed? <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, the in Speed, the um, uh, the bomber in that one was a much, you know, better actor. Um, but uh, still, nonetheless, that's where my mind went to. Um, okay, this episode starts out with something pretty insulting, in my opinion. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it. They have Garibaldi and... I don't think it was Zach. I think it was somebody else, some other security guy, that were trying to, like, they were essentially doing, um, I guess, a, a check on them as they were coming into Babylon 5. Okay. Yeah. And they were meeting with these drowsy oh, missionaries. Drowsy and they're like, this place is holy. And, uh, you know, everything here is, is now holy because of it. And so, you know, it, they were touching. They were poking. Poking. Zach. Uh, Zach and uh, and Zach was like, poke the plant. Yeah, go poke the plant. But before that, Garibaldi was just like, really raking him over the coals. Over from what I could tell, nothing. <laughs> just because he seemed to have the power and was bored at the time, and so he thought he'd just give these drowsy missionaries a hard time. It seemed like he was standing there just to give everybody a hard time. And I just, I was pretty insulted as a viewer at that point to have them write that scene to just insult these people like this who apparently you know they we try and treat faith with such delicate uh uh delicate hands and you know treat it with uh the the type of uh respect that it needs but when the drazi show up as missionaries oh let's give them a hard time he, about he this. actually writes in the script book that he specifically says he's trying to show that nobody takes the drazi seriously on anything Wow. They just don't take the race seriously. Well, I... Yeah, I, I didn't care for the scene. But they segue into this great scene with Lanier. With the guy who's sitting there talking to him. Hey, you know, uh, I once had this girl. I, I don't remember now what he talks about, but... I wanted to read from the book here about that scene. Speaking of the obnoxious man who sp sits with Lanier in customs, I'd originally written this part for Harlan Ellison. Um... Do you know who Harlan Ellison is at all? Hasn't he been in, his, in this before? He's never been on camera, as far as I know. But he's listed as a uh, conceptual consultant at the beginning of every episode. Oh, I thought they named a character Harlan. Uh, they may have named a character Harlan, too. But they haven't, they haven't had the actor himself, or the, the actor, the writer. He's a science fiction writer. And he's kind of famous in the science fiction industry for being a world-class jerk. Oh, great. All right. <laughs> I mean, he is... He, 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 he doesn't suffer fools lightly, and he considers everyone but himself a fool, is the way I've heard it described. Now, I personally have never met the man. 
But I know the uh, the guys from Penny Arcade had a uh, I don't know if you want to call it a Q and A off with him once at a convention where they tried to insult each other through their panels. Oh, okay. Over the course of a convention, um, he he wrote the I think he wrote the Tribbles episode of Star Trek. I mean, he's been around science fiction for a long time. He's, wow. He's a, a very um, I'd say he's right up there with like Heinlein and Asimov as one of the like the founding fathers of science fiction. Tribbles wasn't a particularly good episode. It wasn't a good episode, but it is... It's memorable. It is so deeply embedded in our culture at this point. Yeah. And, and he has a lot of things like that, where it's like, I don't know if I'd say it's good, but everyone would recognize it if you mentioned it kind of stuff. Um, but he, he is pretty, pretty well known for being annoying. So he says, I wrote this part for Harlan Ellison based on a performance he'd given while reading aloud his short story... Prince Mishkin and Hold the Relish, which I have not read. For reasons that now escape me, things didn't quite work out, so I had to find someone else to fill the role. I can't remember whether it was John or I, or John Flynn himself, John Copeland or I, or John Flynn himself who first suggested it, but somehow the idea came to us of having John Flynn, our director of photography, play the role of the obnoxious man. We had a casting session with other actors just to cover ourselves. But in the end, there was no question that John Flynn was our guy. Oh my god! So that's the director of photography. <laughs> for the next several days, he'd pop into my office and enact the scene for my benefit. He did this over and over and over again. And did I mention over again? Then on the day we went to shoot the thing, he was terrified for the first take. <laughs> but after that, he just nailed it. By the way, Netter's syndrome, referenced during that scene, is named after executive producer Doug Netter. And is a rare disease that renders you both incomprehensible and annoying at the same time. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that didn't help make that scene any better for me. You didn't like that scene? Not really. Oh, I I thought it was scene. a little over the top. Okay. And especially the way Lanier then chooses to lie. Yeah. And say, oh, I have this horrible disease. <laughs> Anyone who comes in physical contact with me. I... I no, I okay. just dismissed it. Anyway, Lanier is really there to meet Delenn and apparently Londo. Well, Londo is coming off of a ship. But he's not there to meet Londo. But Delenn and Londo were there together. They were talking as they were both disembarking, yes. Um, okay, that'll be a little... We'll mention that in another okay. episode later on. But at any rate... Lanier goes out to meet them, sees that a bomb is going off, and then throws Delenn and Londo away from the explosion. The explosion and, and the falling debris. And then the doors close, and he's stuck, and everything kind of collapses in on him. And it's touch and go as to whether or not he's going to make it. And Londo is really touched by this. Yeah. And uh, seeing yeah, there's a little connection between the two of them. And uh, Londo doesn't really leave his side much. Um, and I, I enjoyed that aspect of this episode. Did you notice anything strange in that episode? In that scene? Where Londo's sitting by the side of Lanier? Uh, no. The scene where Londo comforts Lanier is also primarily done in one take. Yet another tribute to the director, Mike Vihar, and to the actor, in this case Peter Jurassic. It can't be a tribute to Bill Mooney because he's not actually in that scene. It's a prosthetic head attached to a dummy. Uh -huh. I don't think anyone's ever noticed that. 
Well, good for the production I said, people. I, I read that and still didn't notice it. <laughs> good for the production people. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so we, now we know that both Lanier and Sinclair were dumbass at some point. <laughs> okay, uh, so bombs are going off and down below and various other parts of the station. And we have an introduction to two new people. Brother Theo yeah. and his traveling band of monks <laughs> who want to study all of you know the deities out there in the world and are prepared to do this for the next 40 or 50 years. Yep. Um, they're going to come live on Babylon 5 and do that. And we also have uh, a uh, another guy by the name of Morishi. I don't know if we ever see this guy again. I don't think we do. Dang it. That's a shame because I like that actor. Um, I don't know what his name is, but you've seen him in a lot of Asian films. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always liked him. He, he, I think he usually plays bad guys. Yeah, he usually does. Um, and he has kind of a sinister looking face. <laughs> that was mean. <laughs> okay, so the bombing is a happening and they're suddenly realizing, okay, this, you know, this is, you know, we got to start breaking these groups up. We can't let people of, you know, more than 10 walk around together. And um, he essentially makes it legal for them to start searching and seizing anything that's on Babylon 5. Yeah. Martial law. Did that strike you as odd? No, it's a military installation. Okay. It didn't seem weird. Hmm. Military installation with a bunch of civilians from other races, though. Yeah. It seems like they're going to be breaking some sort of law with some other race. You know, some sort of, you know, oh, no, 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 I'm, this is sovereign territory, you can't search me, kind of a thing. You're, you're on Babylon. I guess if they went to their ambassador's quarters, which are sovereign territory for that planet, they would probably be protected. But other than that, it's Babylon 5 space. You're under our law. Okay. Um, so one of the uh, bombs goes off uh, right uh, after Londo walks up to an elevator and mm-hmm. sees Jakarin and he's like, yeah, you know, I'll take, I'll wait for the next one. <laughs> the bomb explodes. He sees it coming down the corridor and he's like, uh, where can I run? Well, the elevator's there. Oh, well, where can I run? <laughs> okay, I guess I'll have to go into the elevator. Yeah. And so then the two of them, Londo and Jakar, are stuck in an elevator together. I wanted to read a little bit about how they do that, that scene here. When Londo is trapped in an exploding quarter in this episode, the director wanted the fire to rush down the hallway, and he didn't want to do it with CGI. So he built a miniature version of the hallway around 12 feet in length and attached it vertically to the outside of the building that housed all of the Babylon 5 stages and offices. He then set a camera at the top of the miniature hallway looking down, put in a plexiglass sheet to protect the camera, and set off a huge explosion at the bottom end of the structure. (laughs) (laughs) The blast shot up the miniature and slammed into the camera. Then he took that footage and composited Londo into it. Nice. I thought that was pretty cool. And, and they, it looked really good. It, it's amazing what happens when you, you know, shoot real things <laughs> as opposed to just relying on CGI. <laughs> hint, hint. Um, all right, so Jakar is now in an interesting position. Yes. He could kill Londo. And I, it's my belief that he could do it in a way that it looks like an accident. Yes, I realize there's 
you know, CSI Miami, but at the time there was no CSI Babylon 5. <laughs> you know, so uh, that that type of science really wasn't that well known. Even though I, I, I agree that it was it, it was around, not to the extent, whatever. You get what I'm saying. Yes. It wasn't part of the popular culture mindset. Yeah. I still think, though, even with the CSI mentality, that that elevator was broken up enough that he could have managed to use something in there to bash the brains out of Londo and say, oh, you know what? The thing just came through and hit him, and, you know, that's this is what happened. It fell on his head. It completely smashed his head <laughs> to pieces Certainly here. for the two hours that he's out cold, Jakar could have done something. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Um, my question is, if you're Jakar, would you have would you have killed Londo? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm so scared for humanity right now. You answered that so quickly without I mean, any hesitation. Um, I I don't know. Probably not. Um. <laughs> Okay, well, I guess we've answered that question. <laughs> All right, well... Um, that scene in the elevator is actually one of my favorite moments of Babylon 5. It's a good scene. I definitely enjoy yeah. it. That That's the highlight of this episode for it, me. It was actually... It was not written to be funny, the way it is. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski wanted it shot serious. But the director... Um, well, he let me just read here. He says, The day we shot this scene, I was coming through stage A... In route back to my office from craft services. That's the table with the food and stuff like that. When I heard laughter, and not just a little bit of laughter, which I'd grown accustomed to being to hearing around the Babylon 5 sets, but peals of laughter that roared from one end of the stage to the other. What the... I thought, and I made my way onto the Zocalo set, where we had erect, erected the stunt transport tube because there wasn't room anywhere else. <laughs> when I appeared, Mike Vihar, who's the director... Peter and Andreas and the rest of the crew looked at me with the kind of guilt you'd expect from a kid taught <laughs> cutting classes to smoke behind the gym. They just kind of froze and looked, she looked sheepish. Mike cleared his throat. Hey, Joe, he said. <laughs> we were just... Uh... <laughs> Nothing pisses me off more than that scene right there. As a supervisor, as manager, and that happens, I'm like, all right, what did you what do? You do? <laughs> we just... Uh, well, Andreas had this idea that he should play this part just laughing, and we were going to tell you, but it was just, uh, let me see it, I said. Mike called for take two. By the time we finished take two, tears were streaming down my face because I was fighting so hard not to laugh, since it would ruin the take. And I wasn't the only one. The crew was in a complete state of hysteria. It was one of the funniest things I'd ever seen. Mike looked at me with this expression of, I found a puppy. See? Can I keep it? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the take we used for most of that scene. To this day, 11 years later, I cannot watch that scene without laughing a lot. I I thought it was humorous. I didn't think it was like that ridiculous. My wife and I both laugh out loud at that. Just his, especially when it's uh, when Londo says, "You know, I'm in here. Can you hear me?" And Jakar says, "I hear you." <laughs> and that this that little interplay between them right there sure. is hilarious. I, I I don't take anything away from the scene. It's a good scene. It really is, but. I don't think of it's like that hilarious. Okay. That, that doesn't pl that doesn't play out in hilarity for me. Okay. I I did laugh when I watched it, but I didn't go crazy. Okay. Now, 
I'm just gonna read here. I I had a hard time. Well, reading that's this. weird. You uh, you hardly ever read from the script books. No, I, I I'm just gonna preface it by saying I had a hard time reading this to my wife without getting a little bit emotional because of the content that's in it. So, oh, okay. I'll see if I can do it straight here. As this introduction is being written. I have just learned of the passing of Andreas Katsoulis. It was not a surprise. We'd known for some time that he'd been sick. But that doesn't make it any easier when you play back a message on your answering machine and there's Peter Jurassic in a wavery voice saying to call back because I need to talk to you about our dear friend Andreas. And even before you call back, you know in your heart that he's just gone. The first couple of days were just non-stop tears, even into the following week. I'd look up from my writing and find that my eyes were leaking and realize I'd been thinking about Andreas. He is gone. The voice is gone. Those eyes are gone. And Jakar is gone forever. Um, he says, I'd planned to write a tribute to Andreas in this volume and tried several times to find the words, but it's too soon. The hurt is too raw. And I just can't. That's all. In another book, I promise. It, uh, it seems nice that uh, apparently Peter Jurassic was... Uh, apparently that much of a friend yeah. with him whether it was it came out of this particular series or maybe they had known each other before from something else uh, it's nice that, they, that that would be you know a continued connection i agree uh, between them and i and i also when i found out that andreas was dead because i always felt that any continuation or spin off of babylon 5 would have jakar as a as a main character and to hear that Andreas Katsoulis was was dead and gone, uh, died of lung cancer, um, it, it was it was a little bit heartrending for me at the time because I do love the character of Jakar so much. Maybe they can have those young Jakar <laughs> stories. I, yeah, there, there's that gravitas that Andreas <laughs> has. I don't know where you're going to find it. Okay, well, uh, thanks for being the podcast down. Um, <laughs> Uh, let's just end uh, by saying uh, crazy guy. Um, they decide to go with the crazy guy cliche and end the story with uh, Sheridan saving uh, Babylon 5. Good enough? By sticking his communicator up his rear. <laughs> I believe that he just had it on his butt cheek, <laughs> not up his rear. My wife, every time we watch this, my wife says, I don't get it. Where is he putting that? I say, don't worry about it. <laughs> I, I actually, it's one of the times when I think, okay, uh, Garibaldi uh, came through pretty good on that. Because, you know, who's going to be checking in the, you know, in the crevice of someone else's butt cheek? Yeah. Um, all right, let's go on to comments. Okay. Listener Moneybag says, oh, geez, this is the Mad Bomber episode. At least they are involving characters we care about. Oh, but I forgot that it had the elevator scene with Londo and Jakar. This is one of the top ten funniest scenes in the series, and possibly one of the top overall scenes as well. A nice twist on the whole enemy mine plotline. Wow, and I had forgotten that Sheridan put his link up his jump gate. <laughs> Something else you won't see on Star Trek. The guy who played the bomber was a good job. He's done bit parts for tons of shows. I wish he had some more screen time. This episode could have been season one bad, but luckily it wasn't. Uh, TV 6.5, sci-fi 5. I think that's generous. <laughs> Alright, uh, LBS says, Babby 5 loves monks. 
Does the does the Holmes Army engage in any spiritual exchange programs? <laughs> Is that where I exchange my spirit for someone else's? <laughs> I don't know that we want to taint anyone that way. <laughs> oh man, that that would leave scars on their souls. Um, he continues. You do have an intern that you can pawn off. Maybe you can trade him for a Zoroastrian. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, but we're not using him right now, so why not? Uh, and as long now, as the Zoroastrian bothers to watch the episodes. <laughs> and now for the Lanier quote of the week. I will do penance later. Even though the Mimbari culture is laden with rituals and formality, Lanier can see the meaning behind the rituals and act in accordance with the demands of the moment. Lanier, in this quote of the week, stumbles upon a metaphor that is consistent with Babby Five's overarching sentiment, stepping out of the shadows. Just as the box must fight legends, he must now deal with an increasingly nefarious Earth government. Earth is hanging over Babby Five like a shadow, and so are the Vorlons. And the box needs to jump out of these shadows. <laughs> Londo has a nice scene with uh, Coma Lanier. I still do not feel sorry for Londo, how do you think he would have reacted if Talon would have saved him instead of Lanier? Anyways, I wish I could ask JMS if the Centauri have stand-up comics. It seems appropriate. <laughs> Londo is, uh, it is not too late to change careers. Just imagine him delivering jokes like, um, well... I just happened to be wandering the other day, and I was enjoying a glorious <laughs> cup of hot jala. And I was in deep thought as I entered a state of purely transcendental contemplation. And I thence thought to myself, what do you call a fish with no eyes? Uh, F-S-H. <laughs> with no eyes. Uh, <laughs> I really like the light bulb joke, but I tend to like humor the others don't, enjoying the awkward confusion of the audience. I wonder how Narn would do as comedians. Jakar might just sing that creepy fish in the sea song. <laughs> uh, by the way, I, I hope that came through as a Londo voice. <laughs> Started out as a Scottish accent. <laughs> I, it wasn't a Scottish accent, I can tell you that much. I know how to do those. Um, yeah, I, I did my best there. I don't, I don't do Londo very well. Uh, and now for the Temerian translation of this episode. Lanier Londo at the transport gate. Londo talking to Lanier in sickbay. Londo and Jakar in the damaged elevator. Garibaldi telling the box to shove a commune, uh, com link up his ass. <laughs> Sci-Fi 5 TV 8. TV 8? Really? People like that Londo Jakar scene, man. Yes, but were they paying attention to the rest of the episode? <laughs> good heavens. Uh, okay, uh, SpongeBob. Another good episode. I loved Lanier's Netter Syndrome. Just brilliant. He was brilliant in this episode and his conflict over saving Londo's life. I also love the religious pilgrims to Babby 5. Last week, listener BS posed the question about whether the idea of angels, and especially the archangel Gabriel, was just, uh, depicted as an alien Vorlon 
would be offensive to people of faith. Well, I hardly think that JMS is a threat to my faith or my belief in angels as a separate creation of God. Almighty, just by suggesting an alternate rational rationale behind the belief in angels. Um, faith and belief are based on faith and belief. Wow, that, wait, did I read that right? It's a tautology. Okay. Uh, rational thought doesn't always go against faith-based principles and will often enhance it, but ultimately a person of faith depends on faith and belief much to the inferiment of atheists. <laughs> Infurement? That's okay. how it's spelled. I'm, what should what should it say? I don't know. I, I just never heard it conjugated that way. Uh, I don't find it offensive because I see this as a television show, not based on reality, but instead on the ideas, fantasies, and imaginations of one man and whoever he has employed to bring his visions to others. Besides, Muslims believe that angels are beings uh, made of light that have no free will. Vorlons clearly do have free will and therefore do not fit the description of an angel. I also find it interesting that Londo and Jakar are both sure that the bomber is from the Narn or Centauri. The scenes with them in the elevator are brilliant. I love Jakar more and more from this episode. He is just absolutely brilliant 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 why in 22 whatever uh, can they not block signals going to the captain's link why would people be relied on to relay such a message and stop it happening I give this episode a 9 Jakar elevates this episode a great deal and I can't resist a bearded man in a robe (laughs) Uh, right, Joey uh, what about your science fiction rating uh, for science fiction rating, there's just not a lot in here. I'm giving it a three, and I think that's generous. Oh, I gave it a four, um, uh, because I don't know why. I mean, it is still Babylon 5, and they are aliens. It's on a space station. <laughs> you do have the planting the bomb on a fusion reactor. Look, I, I like the idea of a bomber, but the way that they made this bomber out to be was ridiculous. I agree, yeah. I mean, th- what they posited with the idea of someone... This lone guy just going around setting bombs in various places, it seems plausible to me. Yeah, I'm with you. But what they did with Crazy Guy, (laughs) no thank you. Uh, For television, I realize that you're going to scoff at this, but I give it a 7. I do. (laughs) I love the the scene with Jakar and Londo in in the transport tube. And then they did this thing in one of the episodes. They didn't read the the whole intro to it here, but in one of the shots where he had blown a hole down into the next level, there are no two level sets like that on the Babylon 5 set. And so what they did was they filmed the whole thing with a piece of the floor, taped down a green screen on the floor, and just said, okay, nobody walk on that part. And then they lifted the camera up 15 feet, pulled that tape down part, and filmed another scene there, and then they composited the two scenes on top of each other. Hmm, interesting. And and when you look at it inside the shot, it really looks like there is actual depth in that the second layer is down. I, I would not have guessed that that was the case. It I was wouldn't have. Incredibly well done. I'm giving this a seven. Uh, I only give this a four. Um, yeah. Creepy, crazy <laughs> bomber guy just Brings ruins it down, yeah. this. Absolutely ruins it. 
despite the good scene in the elevator, despite the good scenes in the hospital with Londo and, and Lanier, I cannot but give this anything But that creepy guy's better. only in it for just a few minutes. Doesn't matter. the rest of the episode. Does not matter. <laughs> okay. Uh, what about the uh, P5 rating? P5 rating for this episode is 8.60. Okay. Moving on to our next episode, A Day in the Strife. A berserker probe threatens the station, while a Narn turncoat threatens Jakar's leadership of the Narn on Babylon 5. I didn't love this episode too much. I like this episode. I think it's a berserker probe thing that kind of turns it off. And the Franklin Garibaldi (laughs) stuff. I know you won't care for that part. Uh, The the Narn stuff was pretty good, uh, and that that does save it, but I I just don't... Let me see if I can change your mind on the berserker probe. In 1968, the House Sciences Committee held a series of closed-door meetings in the subject of extraterrestrial life. Scientists from a dozen disciplines came from all over the planet to testify, including the late Carl Sagan. In the course of those discussions, several scenarios were put forth describing ways in which we might potentially one day encounter beings of a non-terrestrial origin. Nearly everyone agreed that the most likely scenario was a probe entering our solar system in search of life just as we've sent probes of our own into deep space on similar missions. The larger question was, if such a probe were to approach Earth broadcasting a signal to see if anybody was home, should we or should we not respond? This question became one of the biggest bones of contention between those attending, some of whom felt that it was absolutely necessary that we respond, while others suggested there was a profound danger in in acknowledging a signal from a probe whose intentions were unknown. Maybe it was just out for a Sunday drive or looking to invite us to join the great interstellar tea party. And maybe it was a berserker sent to locate and eliminate competing species. At the end of the hearings, it was finally decided that should such a probe enter the solar system and send out a signal in search of life, it is the position of our government that we do not respond. We play dead and let them pass. Wow. Are you serious? Yeah. This actually took place? Yes. Well, uh, what was the time on that again? 1968. Okay. During the production of Babylon 5, I was invited to a California Institute of Technology at, in Pasadena to have dinner with a group of scientists and high IQ folks, including none other than Freeman Dyson, physicist, creator of the Dyson Sphere, and Professor Emeritus at the <laughs> Institute for Advanced Study. Well, hold on. Creator? Creator I of know. the idea of a Dyson Sphere. I had the same hesitation <laughs> when I read it. Unless he's built this thing someplace that I'm unaware of, he does not get to be creator of this he's thing. He's the inventor of the Dyson Sphere. Uh, and Professor Emeritus at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, where he held the Einstein's chair. Why he didn't sit in it is anyone's guess. <laughs> For as much as I'd like to think that I'm a reasonably smart guy, I was out of my depth in the crowd. In, in this crowd, as a Cro-Magnon invited to a fancy dress ball, as I sat with them in a private room paneled in rich dark wood and glass-enclosed bookcases containing volumes of scientific thought that went back thousands of years, check question. Listening to conversations that touched on the quantum fabric of the t- space-time continuum, I found myself desperately trying to add something of value to the conversation. That would not end up sounding like, so, um, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? <laughs> this goal was complicated considerably by the fact that my brain had apparently been replaced by a dial tone. Then I remembered the house hearings noted above. 
So here's a question, Mr. Dyson, I shouted at last. The conversation stopped instantly. <laughs> Everyone looked over at me, startled that a voice had finally come from that particular chair. Despite feeling like a kid seated at the children's table, interrupting the grown-ups to ask what this thing was that I just pulled out of my nose, I pressed on. <laughs> I asked Dyson if he was familiar with the findings of the House Committee regarding extraterrestrial contract. Contact. He was. Duh. <laughs> so now came my question. If you were in an observatory and picked up a signal from just such a probe passing through our system and you had only a few hours in which to respond, would you push the button? His face fell into his hands in obvious agony. Finally, after wrestling with the question for several minutes silently, he said, If I were alone in space, in a capsule of some kind, so that only I would be taking a chance, there is no question that I would press the button to establish contact. But being here on Earth with billions of lives at risk, because I don't know the intentions of this probe, I would have to say I could not press the button. I would not press it. I would hate myself forever after, but I would not press it. And I thought, if that's a story that can bring a guy like Freeman Dyson to his philosophical knees, then by God, that's a story we should tell on Babylon 5. I agree. I just don't think they did a good job of telling it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I agree. The story, the idea is compelling. All right. But not the way that they told it. Fair enough. Doesn't, doesn't work for me at, at all. Um, the, I can't remember, but this had a stupid intro. And I know it had a stupid intro because I wrote, Stupid Intro. It's another strike. And there's the guy who says, You got your guns up there and all we have oh is what we gosh. have. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Dang it. I was better off not remembering what this stupid intro was. Um, well, anyway. my work here done then. Move on. Uh, we have apparently a replacement for Jakar in the... In this new person of Nafar. Yes. Um, <clears throat> okay. You remember back in season one. We have this scene where uh, this one alien is trying to bring aboard this knife. Yes. And they stop him at the gates. And they give him this like, hey, what are you doing with this here? And he's like... Oh, it's her religious life, you know, and it, it fades into the background. Mm -hmm. But it's clear he's no, not I'm getting sorry. aboard yep. with a knife. And now we have a Narn showing up with a sword. Yes. In full display. And nobody bats an eye. He's free to walk about the station with this thing. Because he's the personal bodyguard of an ambassador. He's not an ambassador, though. He is an ambassador. He is the ambassador to Babylon 5, appointed by the Centauri. He is the Narn ambassador to Babylon 5. I still don't buy it. Okay. If, if It's clear that all of the ambassadors have come to Garibaldi at various points and said, Hey, I'm going to need security for such and such a thing. Because Babylon 5 appears to be responsible for security for them. But not from their own race. What? That's what that's what Talon is there to defend Nafar from. From the Narn. I, I don't disagree with that. <laughs> but it still go, comes down to the responsibility of that should fall on Babylon 5 if it always falls on Babylon 5. Okay, alright. I think this is inconsistent. 
Now, I, I don't want to take away from the fact that I think it's great that the guy is carrying around a sword. And plus, Kalon, he's cool. And he's, you know, perfectly willing to use it. Anyway. I, I thought there was a bigger inconsistency re, 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 regarding the sword. Wait. Oh, okay. Go, go ahead. He pulls it for the fight that Jakar interrupts and says, Have I taught you nothing? Is this what we've been reduced to? The Centauri are getting exactly what they want. No big deal. He pulls the sword. He puts the sword away. I know where you're going, yeah? <laughs> and I have an answer to that. Okay. At the end, he draws the sword in Jakar, and Jakar says, um, I'm looking for what he called it. So that is a katak. You cannot see that until it has drawn blood. And in order to see that, he cuts his own hand. Yeah, it, it was, uh, was kind of dumb the way he did it, because blood showed up at one end of the sword. By the time he gets to the top part... There's no more blood on the blade. Oh, no, it was still going blood. Yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Your, your version of the DVD must not be high quality. High def or something. Because there's still blood all the way up to the tip of the sword. It's yeah, fainter. Not, it's not fainter in, as it goes up. Not in what I, what I saw. Okay. But I just thought it was weird that he didn't have to draw blood the first time to shoot it. I think he did. Okay. I think he actually hit that other guy. The guy with the knife? And drew the blood. Okay. That's what I chose to believe. Because okay. I thought the same thing. Thought the same thing. I actually went back and watched it, and I didn't see any blood get drawn, but I'm willing to accept that. Well, we see him whip around, and I like to think that he hit him. Okay. Um, okay, um, okay, there's a really disturbing scene where Nafar checks in with yes, Londo. with Londo. And Londo basically... He's really cruel. Yeah, goes through and asks him this series of questions like, you know, hey, what's it like there? If I walk the streets, you know, would yeah, I be able to? Um, and he then says, do the executions continue? And Nafar responds with, the executions continue. As though this is a perfectly legitimate type of conversation to have. <laughs> and I was absolutely sickened by that. And once again, this is another reason why I hate Londo. Okay. I do not care for him at all. It is disturbing. You know, he goes and he has a conversation with Delenn where he says, I feel like I've lost all my friends. And I like Delenn's response. She says, I think you've lost something greater than that, but that's between you and your God. Yeah. And, you know, the implication being, you've lost your soul, man. You are you are gone. Yeah, doesn't she say in, in this episode when he says, I, I, you know, we used to be friends. We used to talk. And she says, yeah, we never really yes, she does. talked. Yeah. And that conversation is very interesting because that's the conversation where Londo sends Veer to Minbar as the Centauri ambassador to Minbar. We'll leave it at that. Yeah, looks like your bell isn't working out so hot over I there. I haven't test fired it before we started. That's why you shouldn't Let's be. Let's try it again. That's why you shouldn't be in charge of these things. You're you're clearly just messing it up. Um, okay, so Veer is going to go off as an ambassador. Yep. He's a sad little puppy dog, constantly looking over his shoulder. Huh? Really? Huh? Do I have to go? Oh, I'm scared. Um, okay, here's a question that I wanted to pose to you. Okay. What does it matter where the food comes from? Nafar has his answer. Yes, okay. Jakar has his answer. Because Nafar actually, I think, was the one that posed the question. Yeah. Which was, look, the Centauri are giving us food. 
what does it matter where the food is coming from? At least it is coming. And Jakar's answer is, they're trying to buy your loyalty with the scraps from their table. Okay. So, food is food. Yeah. You want to live, you need food. Not as bad as you need water, but still, nonetheless, you got to eat. So, does it matter? Is, the, I guess the real crux of this comes down to, for me, I mean, the whole point of this episode, and I don't really care about the rest, is, is Nafar a traitor to the Norn people? Because in my mind, I don't think he is. It's really? clear from the episode that Jakar is supposed to be the one that, you know, he's the pillar that we look up to because he's the one who, you know, genuinely cares, you know, on a, this other separate level of, look, you know, we have our pride to protect and, you know, yes, the Centauri are feeding us, but they shouldn't have been doing, doing this at all in the first place. You guys are forgetting the fact that they were bombing us and they, you know, nearly wiped us to extinction. In, in my mind, I don't agree with Nafar, but I understand his point of view. From his side, he's not. his motivation is to protect his people. And the best way that he can see to do that is to turn them all into a, a form of pacifist. To say, look, let's just accept whatever they're going to give us and we can outlast them. Let's just turn this into, look, we will, you know, we're going to turn into the peaceful society. We'll just sit there and take whatever they tell us and whatever they do to us. And because of that, we can survive. Now, whether that's wrong or right is immaterial, in my opinion. Okay. Jakar's clearly of the opposite end of the spectrum, yep. which is fight them at every chance you get. Yep. Do not give in to them. Do not... Just roll over and and take whatever they're going to give you. Uh, again, I think I tend to agree towards the Jakar spectrum. I think I'd go with him. I really do. But I'm not... I, I don't think that Nafar is a traitor to his people. Hmm. I think he's a traitor, but not for that attitude, but for what he's come to Babylon 5 specifically to do. Which is to take... The, the, the brightest hope of the Narn race for a rebellion at some point and bring him back to Narn to be killed. That's the part where I think that Nafar has gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the it's the action. It's not the belief. There, I have no problem with his set of beliefs for the if that's what he needs to do to get you know to sleep well at night but, okay but those beliefs should lead to an action they should lead to some action but i think the action that he has chosen to take is too far but his responsibility is to act for the centauri will and the centauri will will has said look bring him back um i think you and i everybody agrees that jakar goes back there they kill him yeah as soon as he gets back there there's no way he's going to live. Um, the A really good parallel movie that I might suggest to people uh, that I think does a good job of this, Red Dawn. I haven't seen it. What? Are you serious? I'm serious. Put it in your Netflix queue. Okay. Do not watch it with your wife. <laughs> Do not watch it with your kids. Okay. 
It is a frightening movie. Or at least, when I saw it as a kid, I was scared out of my wits that the Russians were going to, you know, come and invade. Wait, thanks for ruining it. No, that that doesn't ruin okay. anything. Trust me. <laughs> All right. Um, wow, you haven't watched that. That I... That seems I've heard the to name me, before. But. That seems to me like something that your father would have had you watch and base <laughs> your guys' lifestyle off of. You assume that my dad is some kind of educated person. <laughs> no, I'm going towards the survivalist mode, the uh, the Bogrites uh, end of the spectrum. Yeah, he, he was more into like the real people than into the, the literature or the media around it. Um, okay. Okay. Watch Red Dawn. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, that's uh, not the same. There aren't direct parallels, but there are little parallels. So you're not at all interested in the Franklin Garibaldi storyline? No. Alright. I think it's stupid. Okay. You're welcome to (laughs) speak about it. I'm not not shutting you down. I'm just saying... There's not going to be any good conversation come out of it if you don't find any of the topics that are raised interesting. I don't. Okay. Don't find any of it. And I think it really comes down to the actors. I I will mention, I can't remember who it was. One of our listeners suggested as a Joey's Culture Corner a book called Dumbing Us Down by John Gatto. Or Gatto. I am making my way through the book, but it's it's not light reading. It's not not a science fiction novel. Um, But he, he raised an interesting idea. Now, I'm not saying I totally agree with this principle. Okay, so the the book is written by a guy who spent 30 years teaching in the public education system in New York. Uh, he says he worked from all the way from the uh, the high end, you know, the ultra rich that were sending their kids to the the best schools, and he was a teacher in that system, all the way down to the extreme low poverty end with the you know people who were barely getting by and and. This is what he said, right towards the beginning of the book, he says, I began to wonder reluctantly whether it was possible that being in school itself was what was dumbing the students down. Was it possible I had been hired not to enlarge children's power, but to diminish it? That seemed crazy on the face of it, but I slowly began to realize that the bells in the confinement, the crazy sequences, the age segregation, the lack of privacy, the constant surveillance and all the rest of the national curriculum of schooling were designed exactly as if someone had set out to prevent children from learning how to think and act, to coax them into addictive and dependent behavior. And the, one, of the, one of the premises that, he based, that he's basing all this on is that the American economy thrives on churning out addictive and codependent automatons. And that if all children that went to school were taught to think and act for themselves, our economy would collapse. We would not survive. Hmm. Interesting theory. Like I said, I'm not sure I believe it all, but when, I, when we got into seeing, talking about addiction in the scope of Babylon 5, it made me think about that book that I've been reading, and I, I just thought I'd mention that as one of, the, one of the topics that's come up in that book. That sounds interesting. I'm still reading the book. It's it, like I said, it's a slog. It's brainy stuff, but I'm enjoying it. <laughs> well, maybe we should have Brainy Smurf uh, take care of this. It's in his name. Yeah, true. 
Um, okay, um, that uh, covers really what I wanted to talk to. Jakar is convinced to stay. Um, I really enjoy that scene, by the way. Yeah, I, I think it's okay. Uh, you, you know, I, I, w- I wish they would have stretched it out a little bit, that there would have been just this line of Narn <laughs> saying, you cannot leave, no. you are valued and needed here. I would have enjoyed that. That would have brought us back to, this is Mr. Such and Such. He's an atheist. This is Mr. Such and Such. He is a Roman Catholic. A scene that I enjoy. Yeah. Still dumb. <laughs> um, Alright. Uh, listener comments? Yes, listener comments. Um, Alright. Uh, Moneybag says, Oh, geez. This is the Mad Monk episode. <laughs> uh, no. no, sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, geez. This is the Mad Probe episode. <laughs> Sheridan and Ivanova are starting to sound like an old married couple. Franklin is hooked on stims. Yawn. This pilot oh, uh, interested me the first time around since it's something you don't see a lot in science fiction. But really, it just takes valuable screen time away from the Shadow War. Oh my goodness, is Londo an SOB? Uh, the scene where he talks to Nafar makes my skin crawl. This leads to Londo sending Veer away to be ambassador to Minbar. Is this because he cares for Veer, or because he is tired of Veer being his conscience? Perhaps both. A good twist at the end of the probe plot, but I still don't care. The Jakar plot was good, but again, not much actually happened in this episode. Uh, TV6 for Jakar, 3 for the probe. (laughs) Sci-Fi 5 for Jakar, Five for the probe. I'm not sure why he couldn't have combined those two. <laughs> Especially when they're both a five. <laughs> Just to irritate you, Pete. Clearly. Alright, uh, Brainy Smurf. He says, uh, quote, No, if they were feeling generous, they wouldn't be wiping out entire races based in lack of advancement. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> We open with mustache leather jacket with a chain man antagonizing the box. <laughs> what the hell is he holding? A space <laughs> wrench crowbar? The thing is kind of weird. <laughs> Look like a big pick, like something an ice walker would use or something. Uh, this scene ironically reminded me to appreciate the Constitutional Convention. It was truly an ingenious stroke from our founding fathers to create the Electoral College so that crowbar-wielding simpletons remain in check <laughs> within the election process. <laughs> yeah, took it right out of our hands. <laughs> there is a lot to say about an episode when it is so powerfully written. Bad acting can be easily overlooked, as can Heller, Helen Keller moments. Speaking of Team Franklin Garibaldi, <laughs> this episode propels the transformation of Dr. Love into Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> JMS, in my opinion, was way ahead of his time with the Doctor's character arc. Doctors often have an unlimited access to drugs. They also have an education level that can often serve toward a method of rationalizing drug use. During the dinner scene... Um, I, ta- uh, I do take umbrage with Garibaldi's description of obsessive-compulsive tendencies as though they were an irrever- irreversible affliction. 
and makes him sound as insecure as the first contact aliens in the B story of this episode. All humans fall into patterns easily. Alcohol does not have some mystical power over Garibaldi. It is he who thrives from the act of consuming it. This means uh, of thriving uh, can be replaced by any behavior that is perceived as stimulating to the user. So saying that once he starts he cannot stop actually uh, ascribes illusional power to the alcohol in the chief's mind. Being able to drink in moderation would underscore the power of drinking and empower Garibaldi to not fear it. On the other hand, I understand that alcoholics can create nightmares for the people around them. So, moving on. Um, by the way, he, he mentions um, that uh, JMS was ahead of his time in, in rationalizing drug use. Uh, he may be, I, I don't know, but I think the best series that ever did it was the series ER. Uh, they had the character um, played by Noah Wiley who eventually gets hooked on drugs because he's stabbed by the, some person and, you know, going through that process of getting, uh, uh, being healed, you know, he's on painkillers. He continues in that, in that same vein. Really, really great story arc that they did in ER. One of their better ones. Uh, my wife watches a show called Hawthorne that stars, uh, Jada Smith, I mm -hmm. guess is, I don't know what her professional name is. Um, Will Smith's wife. <laughs> and they they have done a very interesting thing with her character where it's only really started to come out, and I think this is their third or fourth year, but it's starting to come out now. And I don't watch this show, but I'm usually in the room when my wife's watching it, so I'm starting to catch pieces of it here and there. But uh, it seems like what they're trying to say is that the character, she's a nurse, not a doctor, but the character is addicted to chaos. So when she actually is forced out of her nursing profession she starts to create chaos in her personal life because she just doesn't know how to deal when things aren't all higgledy-piggledy hmm. alright Dr. Feelgood tells Garibaldi that he can control his usage and this comment is consistent with all junkies and addicts at first the doctor feels he's stimming for justified reasons but as Garibaldi points out he is taking on extra shifts when he does not need to. This behavior, in turn, provides a pathway pathway for more, quote, necessary stimming, unquote. When he is trapped, twitching in an uh, aurora boros of darkness, uh, sorry, and now he is trapped, twitching in an aurora boros of mm -hmm. darkness. Great writing, GMS. Stims seem to be an evolution of cocaine, but the drug itself is not as important as the role it plays as merely a means to assist Dr. Feelgood's self-destructive behavior. The doctor is unable to sufficiently answer the who are you question, and in turn, is willing he is willingly sacrificing the future by serving the present. The box and Tilan on the Strabe ship. <laughs> the Box and Talon drinking OJ at the bar. <laughs> we are all excited to see the uh, the samurai Narn again. Talon's drawing of his own blood is a great moment of establishing integrity and his own personal level of sacrifice. Okay, I gotta get past this. The whole, like, thing where people, like, cut their hand open as a symbol. 
Seems to me like the dumbest thing you could ever do. I can't think of any one thing on my body I use more than my hands. And what, uh, why don't you just cut the back of your forearm? That'll get some blood flowing. <laughs> or maybe one of your legs. I'm just saying, leave the hands alone. I'm getting tired of it. Yeah, I don't see that happening. All right. Um, let's see. Where did I leave off? Uh, okay. Talon and Jacquard display such a strong sense of pride that Londo could never fully eradicate it. This is a super kick-ass Narn episode. Jacquard is learning humility as Londo is starting to hit the proverbial ceiling. As the crazy Centauri exclaimed to Jacquard during the elevator scene of the previous episode, With enough effort, you can force yourselves, ourselves through the ceiling. I don't have a good uh, European accent. <laughs> Please stop you. asking me you, to make one up. You wander into Scottish. Do I? You do. I'm going to play it back for you here in a second. Well, I'll hear it myself when I edit this. Maybe I do. Uh, I just need to eat enough gravel to get it into my voice to do uh, Londo, I guess. Uh, I think this quotes, uh, this quotes envelops Londo's core. Unfortunately for Londo, his character's intangible ceiling is comprised of ominous, cloudy doom, and it will continue to hover above him, always just out of reach. JMS is riding strong, possibly with the power of Grayskull strong. <laughs> the eloquent dichotomy of these two characters continues to evolve as the element of pride is infused into the ongoing Londo-Jakar arc. And Veer, in Valen's name... Stay away from uh, meanie face somebody while on Minbar. Do not try to give him a high five. Additionally, the first contact plot with the insecure aliens and their berserker masquerading as an interstellar Darwinian gardener was interesting and original sci-fi. Does anybody recognize the noble act of sacrifice by the bot that exploded itself? It's <laughs> a fair point. Sci-Fi 8, TV 8. Spongebob. I really find Londo sickening in this episode. The idea that it is not enough to beat them, we have to break them, is just disgusting. And in the end, it can only be the Centauri to suffer through such an, uh, such an attitude. Um, if you cannot see the soul in others, then surely it is only you who have depraved yourselves. Even his favor for Veer doesn't make up for the sentiment he showed. I can understand the desire for victory or having dominion over your enemy, but humiliation and receiving joy from the humiliation of others sends shivers down my spine. Dr. Love, putting his life at risk for a dance with a lady. How humble Garibaldi is in thinking that the woman was looking at Dr. Franklin and not him. <laughs> If he had been up for 20 hours, why would he go out for a drink? I know. <laughs> I hate that. Okay, sorry. Why didn't he just go and get some sleep? <laughs> Who cares anyway? I can see why Babby Five folks would care. I know I wouldn't want to be treated by a doctor who was abusing any kind of drug. But as far as I am aware, JMS hasn't released stems to the wider public. <laughs> the space probe is interesting. I'm sure there will be divided opinions about it amongst the listeners, but I liked it. I think Bob might have slept by that point. 
Do we ever find out who sent the probe? No. No? No. Okay. I also enjoyed the argument between Jakar and the new ambassador. Both make very good arguments. I don't believe for a moment that the Centauri would not harm Jakar. One question that I don't think has been asked yet, and I am a little confused about, is the question of the Narn having nipples. If they are pouchlings when, uh, when young, it gives the impression that they are a type of marsupial. <laughs> Would the nipples be on the chest so far from the pouch? I couldn't help but wondering about this while watching Jakar pack in his bathrobe. <laughs> I think the guy looks awesome in that robe. Almost kind of like a monk. A good solid episode eight. Um, you know, we haven't ever seen a, a, a female Narn's bare chest. Maybe that's where the pouch is. <laughs> Who knows? Or maybe they just carry them around literally in a pouch. <laughs> like, you know, this thing that they make and, you know, it just sits right underneath gotcha. the, yeah. the, the teat, so to speak. Um, okay. Uh, sci-fi rating. Right? Yep. Okay. Um, this is Okay. I give it a five. Hmm. Uh, I found the Berserker Probe story a lot more interesting than you did. I gave it a seven. Uh, TV for me, the the Franklin Garibaldi stuff, the Berserker po- Probe, uh, kind of kill the buzz of what uh, was some decent stuff with the Narn. Uh, I'm only going to give this a four. I enjoy the Franklin and Garibaldi stuff in this episode. Um, I, I, I care about the character of Dr. Franklin and what happens to him. I like the guy and I, I feel for him as he goes down this self-destructive path. I'm giving this a six. The P5 rating is 7.85. Moving on to our next episode, Passing Through Gethsemane. The victims, or the survivors of, the loved ones of the victims of Grima Wormtongue hunt him down and kill him. That was awkward. <laughs> um, good actor. Yeah. Definitely good actor. Uh, I, I just want to say that to, to begin with. Um, I, Brother Edward, you know, he looks the creepy part. <laughs> and uh, It's his forehead. Something about that man's forehead. There's something wrong with it. Um, okay. Another dumb intro. Brother Theo... Beats Sinclair in chess. I believe that it's possible that Sinclair could lose at chess. Okay. But to sit there so smugly, like, uh huh, I've got okay, you on yeah, the ropes. I'm with you there. And then Theo's like, uh huh, oh, uh huh, one move, checkmate. Yeah. And Sinclair has no idea that right. that's happening. So, so here's what I wrote, Pete, and here's what I think the problem is there's no way even a half decent chess player finds this scene even remotely plausible. Unfortunately, most of the country doesn't know how chess works. <laughs> I think I including so. J. Michael Straczynski. <laughs> I don't know if the guy knows how to play chess or not, but I don't know how someone who knows chess even writes that scene. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. It, it is. Um, okay. Lita Alexander is back. Yeah. And she comes back through an interesting uh, ship. Which is Kosh. Yeah, Vorlon. And uh, once again, we get the uh, Kosh just shows up out of nowhere scene. <laughs> he, he, he seems to have a secret entrance <laughs> into the docking bay. 
<laughs> I hate that dress that Lita's wearing. The thing with the that covers her gills on her neck. Okay. I thought that that was the point of it as well. Um, but, which by the way, I, I know what they're doing. They're just taking, you know, a normal um, lapel and just kind of turning it inward. Yeah. Like they've been doing it all through the season, through yeah. the series. Um, I thought that that was the case. But we see her later on without anything covering her gills or her neck. I honestly think it's so that we're paying attention to her neck. So that when we they show us the gills, we're looking there. Yeah. Which, by the way... Okay. She goes and she gets a, a physical. Because Sheridan says, you know, hey, I... You know, are, is everything okay on the up and up? And she gets a clean bill of health. Yeah. As a matter of fact, she's even better than she was before. She doesn't have her anemia for iron. Uh, she doesn't have any other... Her hernia is gone. Yeah. How does Franklin not notice gills Cause in the, a scan? Because the gills only appear when she's talking to Kosh. Uh, no, no. Absolutely know. not. <laughs> it is so yeah. ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. I agree. And why does... Why does... Well, I guess... Kosh living in the uh, in that particular area with the hazardous gas around him right. is probably just a way of preventing people from hanging out with Kosh. Like, <laughs> hey, buddy, I bought some popcorn over. Let's watch a movie. You know, it's Kosh. Let's watch some porn. <laughs> oh, why? Why does it have to be porn? Why did we have to go there? I just think that would be hilarious. Garibaldi showing up at Kosh's door. Jeez. Anyway, the the main part, point of this episode is not so much Lita Alexander, but this guy, Brother Edward, who is one of the monks uh, with Brother Theo, and he is... Some strange things are beginning to happen around him. And he's kind of, what we think is, you know, kind of losing his mind. A black rose falls out of his uh, oh, bag. Um, which, by the way, we've seen a black rose before. Didn't we see that in, like, season one? Like, Jakar yeah, wakes so. up and there's, like, this black rose yeah, next to him? Yeah, it was the him? Narn Assassin Corps. Oh, okay. So it wasn't the same guy? No. Oh, dang it. That would have been a nice connection. <laughs> uh, anyway, he's seeing writing on the wall. And I, I didn't write the, the quote down, but apparently it's something that... Death walks among you. You know, this killer used to write. We'll, we'll come to find out later on. Um, he has an interesting conversation with uh, Delenn mm -hmm. and Lanier, where they're discussing a bit of their theology and, you know, what their beliefs are regarding the soul. And Delenn says... Uh, Delenn and Lanier kind of explain... You know, it, the best way to explain this is you shine a light, you know, against a wall. Well, that thing on the wall, it's just um, a reflection. You know, it's not the source of the light itself. And this is what we believe that the souls are. The soul is not in the body, but is a projection from somewhere else. Right. It's a non-localized phenomenon. It, and it is, what it is that he eventually gets to is, it's the universe. The universe is all connected, is this thing that has broken itself up to adv advance out there and look for meaning. 
It's trying to understand itself. Yes. And so, you know, I, I guess we come away with the idea that <clears throat> we are the universe. Right. Uh, or at least according to the Minbaris, that's the way they see things. Whether they're right or wrong is immaterial, but that this gives us a little idea, a little bit more background into who the Minbari are. Um, so he uh, he then leaves. He goes about his uh, his day, but he's starting to remember past bits about his life. He's seeing flashbacks of things, and eventually he bumps into this Centauri. Well, that's when he starts to see the flashback. Yeah, yeah sorry. He's so. The, we come to find out that that Centauri is a uh, telepath mm -hmm. himself, and the uh, the the telepath essentially wakes up a part of his mind, and he starts to realize he is not who he thinks he is. Right, and he does some searching, and he comes to find out that he's some guy named what Charles was Charles, it? Charles, yeah. Who was a murderer? Yeah, he was the Black Rose Killer. So he had gone through the the process of mind wiping, where they 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 implant a new personality into him, and he's sent out to then, uh, you know, uh, atone so to speak for his sins uh, amongst the people that you know he had harmed. And so in his case, he's you know he ends up with the monks. Brother Theo. And it's clear that Brother Theo seems to know something about his past. Yeah. Uh, and, and is obviously concerned. So, m what I wanted to ask, the, the little discussion I was hoping to have, and this is something I would have liked listener Jim to maybe have sent in something that. about, but he's been so busy. Um, who is real? Is it Charles or is it Edward? Can't they both be real? Well, are we saying he is schizophrenic? I would say he has had schizophrenia induced upon him, yeah. So, which is the... So, we've got two personalities inside the guy now. The dominant personality, in my opinion, is clearly Edward. Because Charles would not have stuck around for his own, quote-unquote, personal Gethsemane. You think so? Yeah. And so, the implanted personality is the real one, you The think? implanted personality, in the end, won. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I don't have an answer for that. I, I don't know how you, you, you determine something like that, so... Well, I think by the actions. I don't, I don't think that a serial killer hangs around to face the victims of his crimes knowing that they're going to kill him. I, I don't know. I, I had trouble with this particular episode when it got to this scene. Uh, it, it, as part of the episode earlier on, uh, in talking to Delenn and Lanier, he describes how, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, in Gethsemane, he knows everything that's going to be happening to him. He knows that, you know, these people are going to come and take him away and they're going to lead him to be crucified eventually. And he chooses to stay anyway. Right. And so he asks himself the question, would I stay? And so I, 
for me that when you know we have the Edward Christ symbolism moment, yeah, you know where he's kneeling and praying. I was a little. I don't love that scene. Okay, I was a little insulted in that regard to have such a very clear uh, comparison. You know, this serial killer is essentially we're kind of looking at him as the Christ person, and, and that troubles me from a religious perspective. Hmm. I don't love it. I interpret that differently than you do. How do you interpret it? We're seeing Brother Edward trying to emulate his personal hero. He, he It's not that... I, I don't think we're supposed to see the serial killer as Christ. We're supposed to see Brother Edward as trying to be like Christ. Hmm. Uh, I am absolutely in favor of, you know, the... Um, the moment of, you know, seeking forgiveness. You know, I, I, you know, the the Gethsemane moment, so to speak, of saying, "Look, I, I realize I've been this horrible person, Lord. Please forgive me. You know, I'm I'm trying to become this better person, and I'm changing my life." It's clear that that's you know what Brother Edward is supposed to be going through. Right. But I just don't love the way that it's expressed through this episode. Okay. I thought it was consistent with the character of Edward that he would choose to reenact such a powerful moment for him. Yeah, I, just, I guess it's just the the idea that, it, for me, it looks like he's saying, yeah, I'm becoming my own Christ here. No, I don't think he's saying that at all. I, it, it's just what I walk okay. away with. all right. Um, okay, so... There's a couple of problems I have with this episode. Well, I, I guess we should finish out. The guy who had beat um, Edward um, and eventually, you know, Brother Edward dies. Um, so the the guys, you know, who had beat him up, who had paid that Centauri guy to, you know, help Undo him the remember light. him. Yeah. Um, his he like just freely says, "Yeah, I killed him. I'm the one that did it." And then he becomes Brother Malcolm. Yeah. Now, I enjoyed the scene there at the end because Theo kind of, Brother Theo kind of rebukes and teaches Sheridan here because he says, you know, hey, look, forgiveness is a, you know, it's a difficult thing. It's a very, very hard thing to happen. And then Brother Malcolm comes out and he takes his head off and he says, oh, hi, I'm Brother Malcolm. You know, yeah, I, I just recently came to this order. I'm here to serve. <laughs> and Sheridan is really taken back by yeah. this. Whether he's, you know, angry about it or not, I, I couldn't quite read that, but he's very upset. Yep. And that's when Theo does the rebuking to him right there in front. And yeah, yeah saying, you have to pardon Captain Sheridan. He was just finishing his thought. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that, that was a, a very, very good scene. Yeah, and I, I like the line that forgiveness is hard, but something ever to strive for. Yeah. So, um, a couple of things that I have problems with. Okay. Number one, Garibaldi searches Brother Edward's room. And they have someone go in there and they and they look at things. And they don't find anything. Well, later on, 
they find out, oh, Brother Edward was telling the truth. There was this, you know, trace of a chemical that looks like blood, but disappears. <laughs> what the hell was that? <laughs> Seriously, I expect JMS to explain this. He just, like, pulls the thing like, oh, crap, uh, how do I explain the writing? Oh, um, there's a chemical in the future. It looks like blood, but then over time, it disappears. You didn't have any problem with that. I did. I did. Okay. You, should have you, you were just sitting it. there like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm getting a laugh out of the fact that it bothered you so much more than it bothered me. But all I thought was, at least name the stupid thing. <laughs> if, you know, if you name it and he says, well, he had blah, blah, blah on the walls. You know, and, and as we all know, it looks like blood and then it disappears. <laughs> it's never going to be good regardless. <laughs> it it would have been much better to say, when he ran out of the room, whoever it was that put it on the wall in the first place came back and cleaned it up. Sure. I can buy that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, okay. Actually, you know what I would have bought a lot more? Is that the Centauri guy was implanting mm. in his mind that he's Except seeing that? The Centauri that. guy was not involved yet. They would have had to bring the character in earlier. The, so bring him in earlier. It's more plausible no, I'm, than I'm not arguing than the chemical that disappears. <laughs> um, okay, and then the last thing is okay, Brother Malcolm, who the the guy who had killed Brother uh, um, Edward, Edward, he he admits to it. Mm-hmm. And they have that trial and mind wipe ridiculously fast. Because it's within a day of this experience happening with Edward dying that all of a sudden Malcolm shows up. A trial can go pretty darn fast. Okay, but the last time we had a mind wipe aboard the station, like, they made such a huge deal about it. And... What telepath did they bring in That's to why do they don't this? Make a huge deal about it. <laughs> yes, I understand Lita's there, but yeah. she isn't working for the Psychor. Clearly, there is another commercial telepath on Babylon Five. It's just not an important enough character for us to be introduced to them. Yeah, I, I, I had problems with that so, because of it. Um, maybe they used that Centauri guy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh... What did you think about the interrogation of the Centauri? Did you have any problems with that? They stick the bag over his head and bring Lita in to rip it out of his mind. Yeah, but I personally thought that, uh, when they started doing the, the illegal search and seizure stuff in the previous episode, I, I was having problems with that. Uh, because I thought, wow, Sheridan's just kind of taking power over here and doing whatever he wants. If it's okay for them to do it in that episode, it's okay for them to do it in this episode. I see a difference. Th this just becomes another form of search and seizure. I see a difference between martial law on a military base and singling out one particular Centauri citizen and basically mentally torturing him. Why? That's all that they were doing in that corridor in that previous episode. There was some guy, some alien walking down the corridor and they said, Hey, let me see what's inside your bag. And they start rifling through it. I see no difference with that. Whether it's something on your person or something in your brain, it's still yours. They don't have the right to go through I that. don't see the thing that happened, the search and seizure, as being mental torture. She mentally tortured that guy. And that is a difference to me. Okay, yeah, it's more painful, but 
Okay, what if they had punched the guy in the gut who was holding the bag? If they had punched the guy in the gut that was holding the bag, we would have had a different conversation about the guy <laughs> holding the bag. In my mind, there is no difference. You're there, there's a you're, line, yeah. you're illegally searching and seizing. In both cases, it's illegal search and seizure. I'll grant that. But there was a line they didn't cross in the earlier episode that they did in this one. I don't. I don't see the difference. Okay. I, I really do not see the difference. Yeah, it's painful for the guy and probably uncomfortable. But you know, it's probably you know it was a, a annoying. Well, I'm for just going to make a note here that you don't see a difference between those. Okay, but you're welcome to make any notes that you would like. If I illegally search and seize you, it's the same as performing a waterboard. <laughs> you're trying to get the information out of me, yeah, and right. both is illegal. Or is waterboarding illegal yet? I think it is. Okay. Know, officially. Okay. Uh, it ends with uh, Lita um, having her gills show up and uh, shooting bits of Ga- Kosh back into his encounter suit. Yes. So essentially, Kosh now has two encounter suits. One is uh, a really weird encounter suit. The other is Lita, and uh, we're just going to have to deal with that. Okay. Kosh likes to take a ride in beings made of flesh. <laughs> well, how do we know that? You just told us. And we saw it. We didn't know. We didn't know anything about that. We didn't know that he was getting enjoyment out of that. I don't know that he was getting enjoyment out of it. Alright, do you have anything else? We can go no, on to comments. Okay. Uh, Moneybags says, Oh, jeez. This is the Mad Monk episode. <laughs> I fast-forwarded through half of this one, but let me see if I have this straight. One. They mind-wipe Charlie and send him to a monastery, and they don't tell Brother Theo he used to be a killer. Do I have that right? Yes. Seems like Theo does have some sort of inkling as to... It was when Brother Edward started to have the nightmares and stuff, Brother Theo says, at that point, I went and I did some digging and I hit a wall. And that's what makes me think that there's something else going on here. Hmm. I need you to find the details. Two, the guy who kills Charlie gets the same punishment as Charlie? In the enlightened 23rd century, he can't get a reduced sentence since he was crazed with grief over what Charlie did to him? The whole thing doesn't work for me because the character of Edward is not really a, is not really a real person. He is just some construct created by the Psychor. And his previous personality no longer exists either. And again, we just met him, so I don't really care about him. <laughs> Oh, and Lita is back. She's better than Talia, but not much happens with her in this episode. And again, Londo is an SOB. Why is he suddenly so interested in the Vorlon homeworld? Weird. TV4, Sci-Fi 5. Have a good week there, uh, listener Moneybags. Thanks for the email. Um, okay. Uh, Brainy Smurf says... You realize now you're going to have to wish each of them a good week or you're showing favoritism. Yes, I am. Okay. Why does Kosh need to store his soul in different places? Is he like Voldemort with the Horcruxes? <laughs> hmm. Vorlon? Voldemort? <laughs> what is amazing to me about this episode is that JMS expresses some beautiful religious concepts without writing the currents of doctrine and dogma. Consider this definition on Hindu philosophy. A preference for the synthesis for disparate views into a larger whole 
rather than the rejection of apparently dissident elements in favor of a single view considered to be exclusively true. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm lost now. <laughs> they, they are inclusive rather than exclusive of all truth. Hmm. I will always remember Delenn's sublimely transcendental description of the universe. I also love the description of the Garden of Eden. This is JMS's definition of heroism. Gethsemane. Jesus was alone in the garden. He was not facing off against Satan, nor was he coddling his apostles. He was all alone in the night. He had to jump into a seemingly hopeless situation, knowing that he would die, so to speak. The comment about a soul being... Did you pick up on that now? <laughs> not until I saw the expression on okay, your good. face. Well, okay. The comment about a soul being uh, stained with sin reminded me of Jainism. It is a super old cousin of Hinduism that views the soul as sort of a clear crystal. When one creates karma, this fogs up the soul jewel. Doing virtually any action creates karma. So it's tricky unless one does absolutely nothing. Intern? <laughs> Jainism? Uh-huh. So is that like the man they called Jane? No. Oh. It is not. <laughs> Have you never heard of Jainism before? Uh-uh. Oh. That's a new one for me. Yeah. it. Uh, I know it to be Eastern in, in uh, nature, but that's beyond that. Uh, that's all I know. Uh, but the symbol of Jainism is a broom. You might see an old sage sweeping his path before him with a broom to not accidentally kill little bugs. <laughs> I, I have seen that before. Wow. Uh, they usually have somebody else come, going along doing it for them so that they aren't even the ones who might accidentally kill the bug when it's being it's swept. Being swept. Wow. Yeah. Other random comments include the question, was the animal gift given to the box made of glass? Glass animals is a metaphor that JMS also uses in Jeremiah. And mind wipes. Social psychology contends that there is no such thing as personality, and who we are is created from our environment. Sci-Fi 8, TV 9. Okay. That was good stuff. Um, I hope you have a week. What? I, I didn't say I was going to wish no, everyone. No, you didn't. Uh, SpongeBob. This was a truly terrifying episode. The idea of mind wipe and death of personality are truly scary concepts. Although this doesn't move the storyline along, it is a very good episode, so I give it an 8.5. A lot of good episodes, um, a good lot of episodes, but didn't really get into the war and the wider story. By the time the podcast comes out, the month of Ramadan will have started. So we wish everyone a blessed month, SpongeBob. Uh, yes, uh, have uh, a good month of Ramadan. I don't know what uh, what Ramadan is. I mean, I, I just don't know what celebrating it entails. Um, uh, part of it, I believe, it, it's related to fasting. Okay. So they fast during the day. So. I believe while the sun is up, and please don't quote me on that, um, that they they don't eat. And it's in the evening time that is the only time that they actually eat. Okay. I won't quote you on it, but I will broadcast it as part of the podcast. That's fair. <laughs> that's that's completely acceptable. 
Uh, yeah, uh, Bob, SpongeBob. Actually, if you wouldn't mind, uh, maybe yeah. giving us sure, a, a proper a explanation of it, that would be great. But that's the little bit that that I know. Um, and past what it celebrates, I don't know. Okay. Okay, uh, Joey, for science fiction, what do you have? Uh, I'm giving this one a seven for science fiction. The the brother Edward, the you know the whole death of personality thing, and scary Lita, I think, <laughs> gets a little bump. Scary Lita doesn't really do much for me, uh, but the uh, the Brother Edward storyline, I, I I completely agree with you. I think that was really good stuff. I give it a seven as well. Uh, for television, I'm just going to give it a six. I think it, it it's a little heavy handed. I think in that in the towards the end of Brother Edward's life, I think he could have soft pedaled that just a little bit more, and it would have come across better. Yeah, you didn't. You didn't like the spotlight coming down in that completely <laughs> open room where this there's this odd thing that he can lean against yeah. to pray? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you completely. I even gave it a 6 as well. The uh, P5 rating for this episode is 8.38. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Home Starmy Presents Trek West 5. We hope that you've learned something, had some laughs, and we always invite your comments to our email at trekwest5 at thehomestarmy.com. Or you can tweet us at hashtag TrekWest5, or call and leave us a voicemail at 801-788-4913. So until next time, I am Joey. And I am Peter. And thanks for listening.